everybody. Welcome to the show. This is As Lutheran As It Gets. I am Pastor Don Riley, joined as always by the Predator, Pastor Christopher Gillespie. Coffee roaster, uh, media producer, first while pastor. First while. First while. It's a nice word. It sounds like special. It. it sounds old. Hmm. It is. I was listening to the Thinking Fellows, and they did an episode on C.S. Lewis and mm. his mastery of the English language. What's the... Uh, What's the uh, C.S. Lewis book where he... It's basically his bio- biography. Is that oh. Astonished by Joy? Yep. Surprised Astonished by, by joy? joy? Surprised by yeah. Joy. Yeah. Yeah. And Surprised by Joy. I didn't know he was... Uh, he was a... Uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, he was basically a lay journalist. He, he yeah. wrote... Uh, rather than be in academia, he he wrote for for the lay people in, in, in a public way. And that Churchill... Yeah, well, Churchill commissioned him to write this... Mm-hmm. this uh, it's it's in mere Christianity, but it's I think mm-hmm. it's the first or second book in there, in that anthology. He for the soldiers, yeah. That was at a time when you could be a public intellect, and there wasn't a stigma attached to that, mm. like you're lazy or you don't have any actual value to society. According to Rod, um, actually writing for the lay people really does exclude you then from academia in in the English setting. So well, I think it does in our call in the United States too. Does it? You kind of get I run think out so. Of the academic well, world. think about the distinction between a peer-reviewed journal article and a mm. blog. Oh, sure. That if you say I, I blog, well, meh, whatever. Mm. <laughs> Versus, oh, I write for a journal. Well, what journal do you write for? Is it peer-reviewed or not? And or I listen to I listen to as loose and as it gets. Right. Or I, I listen to a learning company or whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, thirty-part uh, lecture. <laughs> But that's the thing in C.S. Lewis's day, you could there was a public conversation. Ah, yeah. Really, because where else do you have those conversations except in print media through the newspaper? Mm-hmm. Uh, most conversations were in books. I wrote a book. You read it. You responded to my book with another book, hmm. positively or negatively. We, you wrote reviews in the newspaper. There were peer-reviewed journals, but they were available academically right? or through subscription. But again, we're talking the beginning of the 20th century. It's a different and, world, different world. Right. I mean, that's why the Inklings were founded, essentially. Let's get yeah. together at a pub and <laughs> read what we're writing to each other and then critique it, judge it, talk about it, talk about writing itself, whatever you know the topic is. Versus now, we just get together on the internet. The new public square is virtual. Yeah. I'm not a romantic, but I like the idea of it anyway. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Well, we've lost that, that sense of interpersonal communication, face-to-face. Oh, sure. You know, with a table between us and and a pint or whatever on the table and real paper in our hands. Now it's all through our cameras on our computers and through microphones, through our phones even. Right. And there's a degree of disconnect with that. There is. It's disembodied to a large extent. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, public discourse is pretty binary nowadays. (laughs) It's my tribe versus your tribe. And, you know, I've got banners and you've got tiki torches. And we'll meet, we'll meet downtown charlottesville yeah been there done that oh not me but somebody right (laughs) it's them those people not me Uh, but i think that's the for me anyways that's why i left academics and Mm. academia is because i looked at the landscape and decided that that's not what i wanted to spend my career doing right i didn't want to be in a classroom and i didn't want to succumb to the temptation to think that what I teach in the classroom was the be-all, end-all of, of this particular subject. Right. 
Yeah. What do they call that? Ivory tower theology? Yeah. yeah. That somehow because I'm teaching it or I've been teaching it for a certain amount of time, my voice has more gravitas than anybody else's on this topic. I'm the expert. That may be true, but with the advent of Google, my 18 years in higher education went right down the tubes. <laughs> no one cares how many books I've read if you can Google it. Right. You know, it's like I, I've talked to you about off air. I did my PhD on Martin Luther. Last year was the anniversary of the Reformation. I didn't get that many phone calls to speak on Martin Luther for the anniversary of the Reformation. Mm-mm. What for? Just because I'm an expert on Martin Luther. Mm-hmm. It's just devalued. It's different than in Lewis's day. Yeah, but we're also kind of justifying the podcast then, aren't we? There is that too, that we're having a conversation <laughs> outside of academia. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's educated. We've both gone through seminary. I've written a dissertation on Martin Luther, but... Mm-hmm. I've read some it, books. I've read some books. I listened to a podcast or two, watched a video, you know, watched a couple Luther movies. That's right. Um, but no, to, to to podcast is the democratization of information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's also conversational uh, rather right. than... What do you want to say? Systematic or something like that. Well, it's not a lecture. I'm not lecturing people who are listening. Likewise, uh, I don't need anybody to sign up and pay for my class to justify me being on the faculty. Hmm. As an you know, as an example, I don't need people to pay for this podcast to legitimize me as a podcaster. Like you said, we're having a conversation, and if people jump into the conversation, that's their choice. Right. And if they benefit from it, great. If they don't benefit it, benefit from it, so be it. Yeah. We're, we are doing it to benefit someone. Right. <laughs> Primarily it, ourselves, probably. It, exactly. But it's very merit it's a meritocracy. Mm-hmm. It's you judge the podcast or any podcast on its merit, not on how much time and money you've invested in, in that project. Yeah. And that's what I like about podcasts is especially now, you can find a podcast on just about anything. Yeah. And some podcasts uh, are about just about everything. They really are. There were three. I was listening to a podcast, and the person being interviewed had just listened to three podcasts about sleeping. Really? And yeah, there, there, there's podcasts just that talk about sleeping and what happens when you sleep and the science of sleep and dreams and all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. There's something for everybody. There. And So that's like a meta layers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Meta upon meta. But what it does is it creates the opportunity for people to not have to go and pay for a college education. Mm-hmm. You can go on YouTube and get a, a legitimate college education from actual college professors who are posting their lectures and videos online. Right. You can listen to podcasts and get a much better education than I did. I didn't know this, but uh, some of the private private liberal arts colleges, they do just provide their lectures for free. Yeah. Uh, one of them that was mentioned to me this last week, uh, they have like a just donate what you think it's worth at the end. So yeah. you watch it and then they just they give you a little ask at the end. And say, yeah, exactly. Give us some you well, know, if you want to support us, that's great. Elon Musk tweeted this last week in response to someone who talked about the the importance of a Harvard education <laughs> for getting a good job. And Elon Musk says, I don't have a Harvard education, but everyone who works for me does. <laughs> and he said, Don't don't fail to make a distinction between education and schooling. Oh, sure. That yeah. education has nothing to do with where you went to school. Hmm. And that there are people who are far more educated than people who have gone to Oxford or Harvard or Stanford or, you, you know, any of the, the sort of upper crust Ivy League mm-hmm. schools. And most uh, this is something my oldest son, Owen, struggles with. His heroes are Steve Jobs, 
Elon Musk, Bill Gates, people that all dropped out of high school. That's right. Or college. Yeah. Or college. And he looks at them and asks the question, what am I doing? <laughs> That's a legitimate question. Because he understands the difference between education and schooling mm-hmm. and the purpose of education as obedience training. <laughs> yeah. And on the other side of it, we have that conversation that I went to school for a long time, two bachelor's degrees, a master's degree, earned my PhD. And yet the greatest education I received was being a missionary and traveling in foreign countries. Yeah. That my time in Mexico and Central America, my time traveling around the United States and so forth, getting lost in the United States, so to speak, provided a much greater education for me. It benefited me in the long term much more than any of the schooling that I enjoyed. Right. Well, I I think we... I think we still probably believe this corporately in that um, we have what on the job experience, right? We call that. Sure. You yeah. Know, yeah. He went to this school, but he also has been a practitioner for however many years he or she, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, we and still I value was, that. We were speaking off air about this, but I was visiting with my organist this morning because she just had soldier's shoulder surgery. She's out sidelined. And mm-hmm. we were discussing this also in terms of the church. Yeah. And, as a, you know, what do you look for in a pastor? Well, you want someone with experience who has that wisdom <laughs> to come in and, and shepherd right. you. But at the same time, you want someone that has the energy of a young man. <laughs> and you can't have both. It's very rare that you can find someone who has experience and has that energy. Yeah. And so what do you do? Do you choose? Because the energy the, might be, what would we call that? Like zeal, right? Zeal. Yeah, exactly. The, the young pastor zeal. <laughs> right. Older pastors may have a zeal, but it's tempered mm. by experience. Yeah. And let's, let's not get too excited. <laughs> right. Exactly. I've seen this before. <laughs> Calm down. Um, but this is always the struggle with education mm. um, and versus schooling. When I first started reading theology, like actual theology, I read C.S. Lewis. Right. And friends of mine who were pre-SEM... And this was after I graduated from college, right. uh, Concordia St. Paul. Friends of mine who were pre-seminary would poo-poo C.S. Lewis because he wasn't a quote-unquote orthodox theologian or a Lutheran theologian or a legitimate theologian. Uh. And my response to that was, I'm just trying to find my way. Mm-hmm. And when I read those theologians that you hand me, I don't understand what they're talking about. Right. I have no lexicon of theological terms to refer to. So when I read a, a Herman Saze, I have no idea what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I just, I had no idea what he was talking about. It seemed like metaphysics. Well, I was going to say that Lewis has that advantage of being a um, apologist, you know, at his yes, core right. for the faith. He's, and he's intentionally trying to communicate that. I mean, Saze is too, mm-hmm. but not to a broad audience. Right. Right. He has a very narrow uh, like apologetic mm-hmm. uh, directive, who he's, who he's trying to talk right. to. Right, that's a good point, yeah, that when he when Saze is writing, quote-unquote, apologetics, he's writing to his own church. Right, right. Lewis is writing as a public intellectual mm-hmm. and a layperson with a classics education. So when Lewis writes, he writes for someone like myself, who picks up the Sunday paper and reads the faith section of the paper. Mm. I don't need you to quote the Latin or the Greek or the Hebrew to me. What I need you to do is communicate some biblical truth to me in a way that I can understand. I can retain it. Mm-hmm. And I could probably talk about it with my wife or my buddies down at the pub. Or when I go to work Monday morning, I can talk about it. Right. And I, I think this is 
something that, especially nowadays in the church, we need to go back to and focus yeah. on. Because I think that's why blogs are popular and why podcasts are popular. Mm-hmm. Because well, people the, are searching, they're hungry for, obviously they're hungry for information and they're hungry to learn. But they're now choosing what vehicle that is brought to them, delivered to them in. Well, the nice thing about listening is that um, it's hard to have the kind of density that you can have with writing, right? Right. Where you can have, uh, we've talked about this when we read uh, one of our German theologians, right? And mm-hmm. it's just just jam-packed. One sentence has uh, just a density of information there, yeah. or things that we want to think about. Uh, and and it, you could you can't just read over it. You have to read it over and over and over. Whereas if we well, just have a conversation about it, right. we can take 30 minutes to tease well, it out. You have an editor. <laughs> when you write a book, you write right. an article, it goes through editing, and it is proofed, and it is tweaked, and it is rewritten. Uh, I just wrote an article for Logia, mm-hmm. and uh, Pastor Kuhlman, my clone father, mm. he asked if he could edit it. I said, of course. He sent it back to me. It was obviously better than when I had sent it to him. Mm-hmm. And yet what he had written not only made it better, but it's exactly what... I would have written mm. had I rewritten the article. And that's what I mean, though, is that so when it goes to when it goes to print, it's gone through that process. I was listening to our podcast um, last the last podcast, and there's a whole bunch of errors. Was that the notorious one where we got like 50 minutes in before we started talking about anything? Yeah. Oh, OK. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> what were we talking about? That was the Kolb podcast. Oh, that was Kolb. Okay. But I made several errors. And they weren't gross, egregious errors, and I didn't do it on purpose. But in the midst of the conversation, I threw out something, and I didn't back up and go, oh, wait, what I meant was John the Baptist's dad was chosen to be high priest the year that he was. Oh, I wondered about a, that. I was going to ask Right, you. versus, I'm not saying yeah. Zacchaeus or Zechariah was high priest the year that John the Baptist is out there. No, but in the conversation, I'm making, I'm making references on the fly, mm-hmm. and I'm not editing it. I'm not going back and editing it. Therefore... In a podcast format, yeah, it's conversation. Right. And it's we're not trying to be the definitive statement on anything. <laughs> no, it's a conversation. Therefore, mm-hmm. you can either choose to grasp onto those things and say, ah, he screwed up. Or you understand that in the, in the context of a conversation, any conversation, we do this. It's just that once you record it and you listen back to it, unlike a conversation that I just had with my organist, I can't go back and re-listen to that conversation. But even if I, if I were allowed to, I'm positive I would find things in that conversation that I would like to take back or edit or change the way that I phrased it. Right. But that's the nature of conversation. And mm-hmm. I think my opinion based on experience is that people are more forgiving that when you make errors in a conversation right. than when you make errors in print. Right. Um, I do this all the time. That's why we don't have a transcript of the show, right? <laughs> oh, thank goodness, no. Uh, but I, as someone who is actually paid to write and paid to publish... I am very critical of blogs, especially blogs that are run by professional companies, especially mm. newspaper blogs. Yeah, right. When there when there's gross grammatical errors, right? Because and if they don't no ex- go and revise it when they have the power. And they, to. Yeah, exactly. And they don't go and revise, it, especially when people tweet back at them or something and say, "Hey, this this paragraph needs this, or your punctuation's all off, or it's not this author; it's actually mm-hmm. this other author. They're not related to each other, and you screwed up the names." I get it. Autocrack does that all the time when I text people. Right. Go back and fix it. But they don't. That drives me nuts. As so I think, well, and that's the overlap in our culture. Um, it's commonly accepted wisdom, for what it's worth, that we're going through the most significant cultural shift since the 60s right now. Oh, I think it's it goes just, farther back than that. 
Oh, sure. But it's just that with the internet, it's easier to overlook it because so much of the cultural shift is happening in social media and on the internet, mm. not necessarily right outside your front door like it was in the 60s. Yeah, and, and for the most part, uncritically. Uncritically. In in the 60s, all I had to do was open up Life magazine and see a black man being attacked by two police dogs in the mm. streets of Birmingham, Alabama to go, oh, there's racism in the United States. Nowadays, when you go online, not only are there millions upon millions of people commenting and putting forth mm-hmm. their ideologies, their beliefs and whatever, their opinions, but there's the counter opinions, there's counter arguments, there's quote unquote fake news, there's unsubstantiated news and information, there's there's people's opinions that are being passed off as authoritative facts and so forth. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it's very difficult, I think, for people because there's so much information, but it's not right in front of your face. It's not interpersonal. I think it's very easy to become disillusioned and form your own opinions, whether they're true or false, and not be open to listening and engaging in dialogue. Yeah. We're really talking about truth, um, but also honesty, right? Yeah, honesty and integrity. I was saying this to the, going back to my conversation with my organist, that talking with millennials, Mm. what I hear a lot is the reason that we don't have any interest in engaging in that conversation about church Christianity is not only are we not interested, not only do we not see the need to have that conversation because we're pretty comfortable, we're satisfied, we're happy with life, but also there's a lack of integrity from their perspective in the church. Mm. The church lacks integrity. Um, The most common example is always the Roman Catholic church. Right. That these pedophile, the child molestation scandals, the Pope comes out and apologizes in Chile this past week for the priest's actions in Chile. And yet, if you do some digging, those priests weren't defrocked. Nope. They were just moved. Yep. And his statement was a political statement. It wasn't a statement of we're changing our system. It's the violence is inherent in the system. Right. It's inherent to the system. And to change the system would be to pull your your own crown off and throw it in the gutter. The triple tiara. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So therefore... Yeah, it might make a good soundbite. It might look good on Twitter. Mm. Pope apologizes for child molesting priests. But if you step back and look at the system, right? and therefore having a conversation with a Roman Catholic and asking the question then, because they were criticizing me for being Lutheran, <laughs> I said, how can you give money at church when you know it goes to um, support the quote-unquote ministry of pedophiles? Right. And the response back is, well, yeah, but every every church body, every congregation has some dark secret. Hmm. And I said, yes, that's the point, though. The millennials who say to me, the church lacks integrity, that's the argument for why. That you can't just blow off these things as if it's status quo. Well, you know, it's just the way it is. That's a statement. That's a confession of we lack integrity. Mm -hmm. It's like I said before on the podcast— if I say something causes cancer and you respond by saying, yeah, everything causes cancer. <laughs> fine. Let's change everything. Right. Like, like if, if the thing that causes, if the thing that's going to kill you kills you, maybe we should take a look at changing that thing. Yeah. If I live in a tent on the African, you know, in the African Savannah, I probably shouldn't complain when lions tear my tent apart and eat me. Or mosquitoes bite you. Or mosquitoes bite me. It's like, can someone, you know, it's, oh, it's just, a, it's just like, part of the deal that you get just, malaria yeah. when you go live in a tent in Africa. Right. No, no. Let's <laughs> change this or move. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yet we're, it, it, it's, it's a, to, to take responsibility and accept the consequences for not only your own actions, but for the actions of, in our case, the church. 
yeah. which we serve. Yeah. Uh, regardless of what the quote unquote crisis or scandal is, it's difficult, especially well, was, when you don't agree. I was hoping that we could uh, tease out a little bit for, for folks why we have the podcast. And I think we unintentionally did it. You know, let's have a conversation and try to be open and honest about, you know, the things yeah. that we don't understand or, or, right. um, or try to help others understand. And if we can right. kind of get to the bottom of something, uh, yeah, it's still not going to be in, definitive. No, <laughs> it's the well, bottom we today. We yeah. don't intend to be definitive. We can't be. We're not the well, be all end all. Be. Until we are the number one Lutheran podcast in the world. That's right. I refuse to be definitive. And how do we get to be the number one podcast, Lutheran podcast in the world? Subscribe. <laughs> Tell your friends and family to subscribe. Mm-hmm. Tell everybody at church to subscribe. Have as Lutheran as it gets listening parties. Ah, there you go. That's fun. You could set <laughs> up uh, uh, a auto downloader that just downloads That's a copy right. about every three minutes. Right. We wouldn't mind that. You, you can you can create party games based on how many times I say you know or um, jujitsu or jujitsu. Yeah, every time Pastor Riley mentions martial arts, do you know slap your neighbor? And since we intend this to <laughs> also be appropriate for Lutheran youth, uh, this is not a Correct. drinking game. That's right, <laughs> unless it's uh, non-alcoholic. <laughs> no. Although I said, don't drink, just punch punch the person sitting next to you. <laughs> oh well, that's so we don't promote alcohol. We do promote violence, violence. But, but we do promote violence, <laughs> but only out of love, only out of love. Yeah. But uh, no, I think this is the this is the challenge that we have with this cultural shift is when kind of writ large, abstractly, you're you're seen as being not uh, an institution that has any integrity, and you're not trustworthy as a as a consequence. Hmm. How do you locally restore? Excuse me, the that integrity. And restore trust. And I think it does have to happen locally. I don't think you can advertise it. No. Or pay for some program and take out ads in, in papers or make commercials that say, you know, we've changed. You can trust us. Yeah. We can just say, we heard you, Pastor Eric Brown. <laughs> right. And we recognize we've that chosen yes, we're, to ignore you. That we're 20 minutes in and we might make it to 50 <laughs> before we talk about the text. But uh, if you think this is long, you should see our actual conversations. <laughs> yeah, in person. Uh, at con- at Higher Things conferences in the summer, we don't actually have conversations, plural. We just have one long, continuous conversation that picks up and right. drops out. That's right. And it's actually like parallel tracks. They're not even, yeah. it's not even consistently one. We're like four-year-olds in a sandbox. That's basically what it comes down to. We just parallel play. <laughs> we may talk about the same thing, but it's more coincidence than... than that reminds intense. me of, yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, no, and I think there's a challenge because I was listening to a, a podcast. Um, Go figure. And they were discussing the integration of technology, oh. artificial intelligence with people. And that in the next two years, the prediction is in the next two years, the artificial intelligence that's already been created will not only take all of the information that's ever been available to anybody on earth that's documented, right? Like they're taking all the information, but also then using it to learn. And that essentially 10,000 years worth of data will be crunched, processed, and innovated in the next two years by this, by these artificial intelligence programs. So essentially, Technology now will advance us in two years. What's taken ten thousand years for us to get to? Yeah, that's more than uh, what's that's Moore's law, right? Yeah, Moore's law. Thank you. Is every two years? Yeah. So therefore, the first step now for us is to form the symbiotic relationship with technology with AI in the form of 
Right now, it's stem cell injections, it's artificial limbs and the improvement on artificial limbs, it's computer programs that think for themselves, it's robotic technology that's independent or semi-independent. And as we form these symbiotic relationships with technology, just think of VR. Yeah, right. And how quickly VR has evolved and, and developed and become not just this kind of novelty, but it's legitimate now. You can engage in VR video gaming and it, it looks phenomenal. It's amazing. Yeah, I was watching a, a show where they actually used it as a plot device, but um, it was a soldier who, for all intents and purposes... Black Mirror? Uh, no, it was a different show. Okay. But for all intents and purposes, he, he was done being a soldier, hadn't been a soldier for a long time, You know, was a politician. Uh, and all it took was one experience, VR experience. Yeah. Um, and he went right back into PTSD. Sure. You know, because of the yeah. the way that even that somewhat limited technology, you know, as yeah. far as resolution and, and yeah. you know, there's there's no there's it's only sights and sounds. There's no smells right. and feels. And yet yeah, it was still enough to trigger. Right. Well, and Microsoft now has actually invested heavily in augmented reality versus virtual reality. Mm. And Google's gone this way, obviously, with the Google Glasses. Um, I don't know where Apple is at with all this, but they the point are. being yep. is that you can you can look at Google Glasses and go, well, that's really crude. But that was, what, three years ago now, four years ago, five years ago? Right. Uh, where they're at now, they're already up to contacts. Right. And now it's just a matter of getting the hardware down to a size that can fit inside a contact lens or just or just simply communicate with the optic nerve directly or so exactly so and you can say well i don't want to integrate with technology i it that scares me it does until you lose your eyesight for example Mm -hmm. and someone offers you a new a new set of eyes or that you could interface with the world in such a way that you don't have to ask siri for a question you don't have to this is really interesting to me there are phones I think Samsung does this, or maybe it's the Google phone, that if you're in a foreign country, you can just hold your phone up to a sign and it will automatically translate the sign. Mm, that's, a, it's your... a Google, that's a Google product. <clears throat> Samsung phones and, have it, yeah. And they also have earbuds now, and they, the earbuds will translate for you. Hmm. So when you go to a foreign country, you put in earbuds, and then when you talk to someone, it will translate them to you. And likewise, you can hold your phone up and it will translate you to them. Right. How beneficial would that be? for communication that you could actually avoid wars just by being able to communicate in a language that both of you can understand because then there's no confusion right and you don't need that clumsiness of the translator so the first step is you integrate with the the technology you perform the symbiotic relationship with it but then as you get accustomed to it then you integrate with it and then biological life is fundamentally changed now right because Whatever biological life has been up to this point is now integrated with technology that can update itself in a way that you can actually have at your intellectual fingertips 10,000 years worth of information hmm. that you can in, you can engage with a thought. Yeah, so we're, we actually are moving towards the matrix, you know. We really are. Yeah, teach me kung fu, you know. Well, and how many people, well, that's an, that's an interesting point. We were actually talking about that the other night at the gym is that you can always tell people who have watched a lot of videos about jujitsu. <laughs> yeah. When they come in and they try and do it. Yeah. Because it doesn't translate. Yeah. One of my, <laughs> one of my other gigs is uh, video production and I did for another organization. Uh, and they hired, had a new hire 
who's never touched a camera before, just a smartphone, right? Right. And is supposedly going to produce all these videos. Yeah. And the first statement was, oh, I watched a video on, on YouTube. And I was like, yeah. okay, does that make you a videographer? You know, right. Because right. It's, it's not simply just tech. It's not just technical. It's actually technique, right? Yeah. Or skill yeah, or exactly. artistry. Yeah. But think about, is it called blockchain? Mm-hmm. Blockchain. What? With blockchain, with cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. That blockchain essentially allows a direct line of accountability, for example, with food products. You know, where what warehouse it was at, how long it sat in that warehouse, who handled it, all the way back to the grower with blockchain. You can go all the way through this. And you can even do this. I guess the journalists are using this now so that all of your articles, like let's say Huffington Post shuts down. They go bankrupt, right? And all of my dreams are fulfilled. <laughs> and... Yet you want to have access to all the articles from Huffington Post. Well, if you put all those articles in blockchain, they're all there for you to go back and and access. Or if Higher Things wanted to collate all of the articles that have been written over the past 12, 13 years, you put them all in blockchain, they're there forever. Even Even if there's a solar flare and the grid goes down, it's all there. And now imagine, though, that you can interface with that in mentally. You can simply put a, an earbud in your ear, put on a pair of glasses, whatever it may be, your contact lens, and you can just go through the entire library of Higher Things articles and videos from the past 13 years just by saying it or thinking about it. Uh, now, mind you, blown. Yeah. Right. And yet we're already there. They're just perfecting the technology. They're streamlining the technology so that it's, you know, you can interface with it. It's not well, clunky. By the, by the time it becomes prime time, you know, and it's right. mainstream, yeah. uh, then add another 20 years and the church will catch up. Exactly. <laughs> well, think about when we were little, from the time that the Atari came out and quote unquote revolutionized video gaming to now. And how long that took in terms of technology and technological evolution. Mm. That from Atari to my PS4 is essentially 10,000 years in relation to how fast it, it goes now. It was a generation, and yet technologically, it's, right. it's, it's a millennia more. So to me, this is the challenge to the church because the church is both blessedly and head on desk bangingly slow to engage culture. And my concern is that, especially for conservative churches, during the Enlightenment, the Roman Catholic Church essentially just locked its doors and said, have at it. Well, you're going to wait till this is over and then we'll come back out. Kind of like how you would treat a thunderstorm. Mm. The problem was the Enlightenment as a movement may have been over, but culture and, and society kept going yeah, with the ideas. And we, think, and we think we can kind of ghettoize ourselves, right? Right. Like dis- disconnect from the world that we live in somehow. Right. And it's like, no, that's, well, you can try. That's called uh, what the Desert Fathers or Monastic Life or something, right? right. Well, isn't that a popular book or it was a popular book last year? That uh, cloistered book, Secular Oh, the, the Cloister Walk? Yeah. The, that one from uh, Kathleen. Yeah. What's her name? No, no, that was Kathleen Norris. That was a while ago. Yeah, that's a good book. No, you're thinking of Benedict Option. Benedict the Benedictine, that's right, the, that. The Benedict Option. That Calvin tried it in Geneva in his day. I think every generation, like you kind of alluded to, Kathleen Norris in the 90s wrote a book about kind of a, a secular monasticism. Mm-hmm. Now you have the Benedictine Option, secular monasticism. It's, my opinion, it's Christians who are freaked out by culture and don't know what to do, so let's just... Uh, like turn our backs to it and pretend it's not there or just condemn it and be done with it. Wipe our hands of it. But 
we're, to, we're called to be in the world, not of the world. And it's difficult to be in a relationship when you never talk to the person you're in the relationship with. Right. And this goes back to what we started with, which is it's easy to go online and, and not, not think about what you're saying or how you're reacting to people because there's pretty much no consequences for anything you say online. Um, and that's why the internet's so angry. Right. It's right. like John Danaher, this, you know, one of the great jujitsu instructor instructors in the world said, what you discover because of social media is that a lot of what is called basic good human behavior is just fear of consequences because mm-hmm. you go online and there's no fear of consequences. People are angry. They're just angry. Yeah. And they do really the, the stupid. Stuff. Yeah. They, right. That, cause there's no fear of consequences. But if you were sitting right next to me at a table, would you say the things to me in person that hmm. you would comment on a Twitter thread about, or would you blog about this or make a vlog about it? If you had to do it right in front of the person that you are criticizing or attacking, how would that change your tone or your approach? Right. Versus nah, they're not here. I can say, do whatever I want. I can be as vitriolic and hyperbolic claim to speak with authority, invent things. It doesn't matter. Cause there's no consequences. Right. Exactly. Maybe, you know, except for not nasty comments. Well, there might be, you might break some, one of those fake relationships you have. Sure. <laughs> on the internet. But that's the point. It all exists in your head. And as we integrate with, with technology, yeah. how much more will re, quote unquote reality just be whatever's in our head, in my own mind? Because if I can integrate with you without this clunky computer and the microphone and everything in our way, if I can just tap my temple and you and I are automatically telepathically linked where we don't even have to talk. We just share emotional impulses with each other or images. Like I literally, this like is right fr- now, I this text, is really a frightening thought, you know, that right now I text you stuff. I text you a video on your phone, but what if I don't even have to do that? I can just send you the video because I'm watching it and you can watch the video with me in real time through my own eyes because of the context. Is there an on off switch? <laughs> right. You would hope so. Mm hmm. Because that would be terrifying. At, le- at least a, um, wh- what is it called on the phone? Like a nighttime mode or whatever. Right, nighttime. Uh, or like when you're driving. Sorry, I'm driving right now. I can't take messages. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> but it's not a matter of if it's going to happen. It's already happening. That's why I'm talking about it. I'm not speculating about what might be. This is already happening in real time. It's already, the technology is already there. They're already playing with it. They're streamlining it. They're, well, in a way, we're so, all playing with it. You know, or, Constantly, yeah. old versions of it. Uh, right. And, and that, the data from that is being used. But the thing is, my great-grandma saw the first airplane fly. She saw the first car drive by her house. My grandma had 30 years to get used to the idea of flight. Hmm. That's right. Before my grandma could fly. Yeah, it's kind of like after, the frog in the water, right? Right. Is that they had time. They had time to get used to phones and electricity and indoor plumbing. With technology, it happens so fast that we don't have time to even learn how to appreciate and use the technology before there's new technology to replace it. <laughs> and then the effect of the technology, generations go by before you actually right. find out. Right. Yeah. That I was reading some articles last week where researchers are pretty much agreed that having your cell phone next to your head when you sleep is really bad for you. <laughs> it, it disrupts your brainwaves. It disrupts your synopses while you sleep. Likewise, looking at your phone before bedtime it upsets your biorhythms. Now they've done the hard science. They've done the double blind studies so they can say, yeah, don't do that. It's really harmful to your overall health. And yet... I always said if I was going to build a home, 
I was I was going to build into the wall Faraday cage of the bedroom. Right. Or at least right? the sun room. Oh, actually, it wasn't going to be the bedroom. It was going to be the audio room because <laughs> I didn't want any Wi-Fi. I didn't want any cell. I didn't want any, you know, right. Just all direct well, connections, no radio interference. What's To me, what's sadly kind of tragic about this is when I cut home at night, I turn my phone off. I put it down, face down, in an, on the other side of the house. Okay. And, and then, especially when I go to bed, I don't look at my phone in bed, period. When people text me or call me, at night and I don't answer answer the text until the next day, they're upset with me. Or uh, they ask, what's wrong? Are you okay? You know, what, does anything happen? Speaking of boundaries. It's like, mm, yeah, something happened. I turned you, I turned my phone off so that I could engage with my family <laughs> and not think about work or the next crisis. Um, or Donald so, Trump so or whoever. Or, yeah, exactly. Whatever it might be. This is why for my own, this is my own motivation. This is why I, deactivated my Facebook account, deleted Twitter and deleted my blog is because I just felt like I was too integrated into not, not reality. Yeah. But a kind Inter of interacting with in, in a artificial way. Right. Right. I didn't have real relationships or real friendships. I didn't have, I wasn't exercising myself in, in real physical ways. I wasn't challenging myself intellectually in any significant way I felt. And for me to step outside of that, created all this free time. Right. And I filled that free time, not with more internet and more social media activity, but with more physical and intellectual engagement with real people in real time. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was a great benefit. It helped me immensely be a more sober person, be a more present tense person, less agitated, less anxious, because to be agitated about something that's not real or is happening to someone else on the other side of the world can make you insane. Yeah. It's irrational. It, Right, thing. it does, and it's emotionally. And I, I wonder too how many people are on prescription medications simply because they're on social media too much. Well, I mean, there's been studies about suicide with young people, right? Well, of course. Uh, again, this is a tangent. We don't have to go down this, but three porn stars committed suicide in the last month, and all because oh, yeah, of, a I read that. of a combination of clinical depression and the way that they are, they were treated online by people. Yeah. The a, a particular so kind forth. of shame culture. That's right. A, a particular shame culture. And again, yeah, you, we can have a conversation about the, the immorality of pornography, pornography and its effects on the people that are in that quote unquote industry. But nonetheless, it goes to the point that when you simulate love in that industry, that's what you're doing. You're simulating actual love intimacy. You're simulating intimacy. Mm -hmm. It, and then you go inside the the world of social media where everything is basically simulation. Um, you're so disconnected from reality. And then you add to it a mental illness. Yeah. How do you distinguish between what is real and what is not real? And hmm. your business is completely tied up in being Perfect. on social media and online. Yeah. Like yeah, your whole life I is literally that. Your value is how how many people download, how many hits you get monetarily that's your your livelihood it's your it's everything yeah because it's performance art from yeah, that exactly. perspective yeah right exactly mm -hmm. it's it's just all not real and it's not even hyper reality it's i would say it's the I, I, <laughs> it literally is virtual yeah. reality it's it's like it's reality but it's not real it's fantasy well it's fantasy yeah it's fantasy exactly exactly that's the danger of pop culture in general is that pop, pop culture is, by its very definition, not real, but rather what is popular. Right. But then, what, but then the goal or aim of it is to take 
to take what is fantasy or not real and and try to make it real. Right, scratch an itch. Mm -hmm. That's that's why every generation has a Taylor Swift, hmm. i.e. Christina Aguilera, i.e. Britney Spears, i.e. Madonna, i.e. you know going backwards. There's always the blonde teenage pop star, Tina Turner. Not blonde, not white, not a teenage girl. But I got gotcha. you, <laughs> <laughs> squirrel. Uh. But nonetheless, every generation acts as if that that is the be-all, end-all. I tell people the right. Beatles really are, they were the ones who figured out the boy band hmm. shtick. They perfected it, and then they moved beyond it. But don't don't say you love the Beatles and you hate the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> because the Backstreet Boys wouldn't exist without the Beatles. Right, right. Every, every boy band exists because the Beatles nailed it. They perfected that formula. Yeah, the, the pop music experiment is actually pretty young yeah. in the history of the world because in, we yeah, only exactly. recorded music for you know 100 years. And, right. Uh, or a little bit over 100 years. And then... Right. Uh, and pop, pop music, music is what? Pop music is taking traditional folk and blues music and amplifying it, electrifying it, and then taking that and and processing it and actually disembodying it as well. Exactly, disembodying it. Because it was in performed a in a real environment. Right. You know, exactly. Whatever that context you, was. You you process it, you disembody it, you package it, you sell it. And the, the intent is consume this, digest it, and forget. And then come back next week because we'll have another thing for you to eat. Oh, that sounds like social media. Yeah. Exactly. Well, how fast does a news cycle move nowadays? You know, uh, Hawaii... Uh, was told a week, less than a week ago that there was an intercontinental ballistic missile coming to kill them all. Oh, I forgot all about that. Exactly. We've moved on. We've moved on. You know, there was a terror attack in New York City about a month ago. Mm -hmm. A guy went to Las Vegas and shot into a crowd of people at yeah, a concert. Right. Okay. That was less than three months ago. Right. And yet, that seems like ancient history. Or you ever notice when you talk to someone about something that you read three years ago? They treat it as if it's from the fifties. Yeah. Ah, that's that's three years ago, dude. Speaking like, of the got now, speaking of the Vegas shooting, um, you know the quite a bit of the documentation or the the evidence was declassified. And I was talking mm -hmm. to somebody yesterday, and I, they're like, "Well, we don't know why what the what was going on. There's so much so much that we don't know." I'm like, mm -hmm. "Actually, it was declassified, but it proves the point. Right. It didn't make the big you know big news cycle, right? Because well, nobody cares." It also exactly, and it goes to the point that it's it's more fun to believe in the conspiracy than it is to just accept the actual facts. Yeah, yeah. It's not as provocative and it's not as titillating, and therefore it's not as attractive or appealing to us. Yeah, and it turns out it was just a it was a bad drug bust. Right, and <laughs> you and you can complain about it, you can lament it, you can treat it as if it's an apocalyptic event. Yeah. But it it's a stream, so to speak, and it just carries you along. Hmm. It's like flood. It's like a flooded river. It just carries everything along. It doesn't care what it destroys, what's left, what's not. It just takes everything with it, and that's really what where we're at culturally in, in our society in the first world is technology moving so quickly that we don't even have time to get used to it before there's something else. And yet the church, as an institution specifically is designed to move slow. Hmm. Actually, much like a, a government. Right. We have these things called checks and balances that are there to essentially stall the government from doing anything too rash uh, that we might regret later. But likewise, the church has a set of checks and balances called doctrine. Right. 
the Lutheran Church, we have the Book of Confessions. We have the Lutheran Confessions, the mm. Book of Concord, sorry, the Lutheran Confessions that essentially say that might be a nice idea. However, does it agree with Article 4 of the Augsburg Confession? Right. You know, you may, I, I understand. It would be what helpful you're for you to hear this conversation that we've already had as a church. Yes, exactly. And, and consider, consider the conclusion that we came to then. Right. Especially nowadays when things move so quickly. We don't recognize how much we just repeat the same argument ad nauseum <laughs> because we have such short attention spans. Yeah. But if you read history, and we are actually about to read history, wow, there was an organic segue I hadn't planned on. Uh, if you read I history, was actually about just thinking cutting here and starting the real show <laughs> and taking everything we just said and making a different show out of that. But anyway. We're only at 45 minutes, dude. We're 10 minutes ahead of ourselves from the last podcast. <laughs> don't get me talking about the Aztecs. Um <laughs> That's another conversation. But uh, that if you read enough history, you do, you do see that every generation struggles with the same doctrinal questions mm -hmm. because every generation thinks that they're going to fix it, the problem. They're going to innovate or they're going to improve upon the failures of their fathers or their grandfathers. Yeah, as if they're really all that different. Right. And yet, as you pointed out, the whole purpose for this podcast is let's read our Lutheran fathers and then see where we are. And that way, again, yeah, we have our opinions. We're having a conversation. You can agree or disagree with the fact that The Last Jedi is a dumpster fire. But what you, but, hmm. but what's not my opinion is what Dr. Luther says, for example, or what Dr. Saze says or Professor Kolb says. Mm -hmm. Now you're wrestling with them. You're having, a, you're having a dialogue or debate with them, not with my opinion. And yeah, we break it down. We comment on the text that we're reading, but in the end, the text stands over and against whatever we may say. Right. And that's really the the motivation for this podcast is rather than you and I just kind of sitting around talking about topics of doctrine or addressing what's going on today, let's read our Lutheran fathers. Let's look at our own history and say, well, how do they handle this? Or how do these historians give this to us in the present tense so that we can wrestle with it? We can chew on it. Right. So today then, or whenever you're listening to this, uh, I'm going deep uh, into my library. Yeah. We're going to look at Luther and the False Brethren by Mark Edwards Jr. And Not this was published this in work. 1975 through Stanford University Press. Really? Yes. I can't even remember where I got this. It's one of those probably at a used bookstore. Probably huh. Looms, I think. I think I got it at Looms in Stillwater before they kind of... I love, the, Again, I love the I love the cover uh, woodcut cover though. Man. Yeah, right. It's a sweet book. Again, I, I don't know. In the old days, they used to really put a lot of effort into the book. The whole thing, the presentation, the binding, books meant something in the old days. Hmm. And the this is let's see, what how to describe this? That's not it. How to describe this book. From 1522 to his death, Luther clashed with a succession of major evangelical opponents. Among them, Karlstadt, Munzer, Zwingli, Oikolampadius, Busser, and Agricola. Most of these opponents accepted the central principles of Reformation theology, but differed with Luther on subsidiary issues. Their success in winning support from other evangelicals posed a major challenge to Luther's version of the gospel message and to his authority within the movement. This study shows us how Luther met this challenge, what effect the resulting disputes had on his authority in the movement, how he justified his harsh treatment of his opponents, and how his followers and opponents reacted to his attacks. 
Beginning with Luther's return from the Wartburg in 1522, the author, Edwards, traces mm-hmm. in succession Luther's contest with Karlstadt, his involvement in the Peasants' War, his dispute with Zwingli, and others over the Lord's Supper, his reconciliation with the Upper Germans in the Wittenberg Concord, his falling out with Agricola over the proper use of the law, and finally his struggle with the Sacramentarians in his last years. And Mark Edwards was assistant professor of history at West- Wellesley College. Okay. When he wrote this. And I don't know if we've talked about this on this podcast, but something I learned in my doctoral studies is that non-Lutherans are often really good at Mm. Luther scholarship because they have this objectivity. Yeah. They're looking at it journalistically almost. They're not doing, uh, they're not intentionally obfuscating what is often from Luther pretty clear. (laughs) Yes, exactly. That if you're a professor at Wellesley, maybe you're a Methodist or something, Mm -hmm. you don't have the same cultural investment in Martin Luther as a Lutheran does. Yeah, that's true. And you may even actually be opposed to what Luther says. So then when you write pure history, like Edwards is here, or the history of a a particular argument, you're not necessarily trying to um, lionize Luther or write a hagiography of Luther's disputes. Luther was right, they were wrong. Hmm. Rather, you're researching the argument itself and asking, like he points out in the dust jacket, why was Luther so mean when yeah. he wrote these responses? <clears throat> and how did his own colleagues respond to the the words and the language he used when he responded to these people? So what we're going to do is turn to the conclusion of the book. By the way, you can get the book on Amazon. There's 22 oh, awesome. used copies. Good. Currently. It, and the book itself is what, 200 pages? Yep, 205 pages. And the nice thing about the book is, as the dust jacket explained, it's a series of examinations of different parts of Luther's career and different debates. So you have the 1520 stuff, you have the mid to late 1520 stuff, you have stuff going all the way into 1540s. And so you get a very broad view perspective of Luther in his interactions, his engagements with people who disagreed with him from uh, Karlstadt, who actually was serving with Luther on the faculty at Wittenberg at one point, to a guy like uh, Munzer or um, Schwenkfeld, mm-hmm. who, who to a lot of people today, they don't even know who those people are. And yet Schwenkfeld in particular, he produced one of the most popular catechisms to come out of the Reformation. Really? Yeah. In fact, if there's anybody that Lutherans should study today, it's Schwenkfeld. Because a lot of Lutherans, if you read Schwenkfeld's catechism, and I think our friend, uh, Pastor Aaron Moldenauer, is actually translating or has translated it. Oh. I, I think. You'll have to check with me on that. And I think Pastor Moldenauer is the senior editor for Logia now. Is that correct? Oh, I don't know. I know he's editor, but I don't know. Editor. Let's say he's editor. Yeah. I don't know if he's senior editor, but he's editor. Um, but I've I've looked at parts of Schwenkfeld's catechism because I have a friend who has it in in the original, in the German Modern Lutherans are very much the children of Schwenkfeld, so much. More so than modern Protestants are children of Erasmus. We are definitely, if you looked at Schwenkfeld's catechism and it, you didn't know it wasn't Luther's catechism, mm-hmm. you, you'd nod your head in a lot of it because it, it is very much a modern Lutheran bent in, in the way that he approaches doctrine. Let's put it that way. I'm not going to say he's quote-unquote liberal, but definitely he would definitely resonate with modern Lutherans, wow. especially on the sacraments. So, so uh, Mark Edwards, the author, uh, just retired, actually. Mm-hmm. From, uh, where was he? He was at uh, Harvard Divinity School Yeah, after being at St. Olaf. 
Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. He was the ninth president of St. Olaf. Nice. Yeah. And stepped down and in And a heck of a good historian. Yeah. He has a most recent book came out in 2013. Printing what? Propaganda and Martin Luther. Yeah, that's right. I knew that. That's an excellent book, by the way. Yeah. There was a couple Not- of books that came out on that topic. You know, Luther yes. as a kind of uh, new media <laughs> yeah. 500 years ago, understanding, you know, the propaganda, how to use media. Yeah, I mean, that's the the Reformation, the Lutherans, the Saxons, uh, they perfected propaganda, man. Mm-hmm. And not enough is written about it because to our modern eyes and ears, it's quite provocative and scandalous. Yeah. Just the level of scatological humor involved. <laughs> it's it, There's a lot of rated R propaganda that they published coming out of Wittenberg. Yeah, some fun photos. Oh, hilarious. <laughs> but uh, so we're going to go to the conclusion and uh, run through it, see where we get. From 1522 to his death in 1546, oh, look at that. It's just like the dust jacket. Luther clashed with a succession of major evangelical opponents. First, there was Karlstadt, Andreas Karlstadt. Then Munzer, Thomas Munzer. Then Hulrich Zwingli, Oikolumpadius, Busser, and the other sacramentarians. Then uh, John Agricola, and finally Caspar Schwenkfeld. And once again, the Swiss sacramentarians. Just can't get rid of them. Those Swiss sacramentarians. Ugh, I tell you. Naughty boys. They're almost as shifty as Mennonites. For the most part, these opponents accepted the Central Reformation principles and assumptions that dis- differentiated evangelicals from Catholics. There's a footnote. This is less true of Thomas Munzer and uh, Schwenkfeld than the others. Mm. But it's a key point at the outset is that the so-called evangelicals were those who followed Luther's teaching or the teachings of the Wittenberg faculty. Yet they departed from it because most of them, many of them, argued that they hadn't gone far enough with the reform oh. of doctrine, the reform, like, not only the reform of church doctrine, but in matters of vocation and Christian vocation, that they just hadn't gone far enough, especially in, in like the sacraments. Would you say that, or would we say it this way, that they understood the why of the Reformation, and but but not necessarily the how or, or what what the goal was? Yeah, that that their their goals parted from Luther and the, and the Wittenbergers at a certain point. Was it pri- well? It was primarily destructive rather yeah. than than, uh, than reform. Constructive it, it reform. was, and it's an interesting point that for a guy like Munzer and Zwingli, they were fine with violence. Mm-hmm. That's uh, right. Yeah, for the sake of reform. Well, even Karlstadt, right? I mean, just, right. You know, tearing down the altars and destroying yeah. statues. And Zwingli is interesting in the sense that he fought against Swiss mercenaries being used by the papacy for their wars, but on the other hand, wasn't above saying we need to defend ourselves hmm. from the church, hmm. which it's a different setting than today. Yeah, In those days, the church had the power of the military and the emperor behind it. You and I don't have the power of, of the military or, or any emperor or president behind us as Christians. And I'm my own personal emperor. I, right. I have, I have my That's own kingdom right. here, but yeah. Well, my kids are all in jiu-jitsu, so we're our own army at this oh, point. Oh, you, you can be our warriors. I like this. There this we go. Working. And, You're and the I, warrior cast. I'm the ruling cast. <laughs> the warrior priests. We're the uh, we're the 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 warrior priest. Is that was it Braveheart? I think it was. Braveheart. Oh, that's right with the, with the Irish guy. 
Yeah, no, the not the Irish guy, but but in all those. Oh no, maybe it was Highlander. No, it was Highlander. It was either Highlander or Braveheart. I think it was Highlander. That the the priests were always <laughs> fighting with the army. Apart from and Scotland, then, there's not a lot in common between these two movies, right? That that in the in the old days, the the priests, the monks, they'd go out and fight with the war with the warriors. They mm-hmm. fought too. They killed, and then would say grace after afterwards. A uh, very different context than we have, and yeah. again, don't judge them, hmm. <laughs> don't dismiss it because they're not moderns or postmoderns, but rather understand within the context of the times in which they lived, they were savages. Yeah. But even, Christ- but even during the revolution, Revolutionary War, who was the, the Lutheran pastor that threw off his stuff? It's in the it's in another Mel, um, Mel Gibson movie. <laughs> not Braveheart. The Patriot? Yeah, Braveheart in America. That's right. Braveheart in America. That's right. <laughs> but there, but it's the same thing. You know, right? they, yeah. he takes off his, his uh, vestments and runs yep. out to go fight the war. What's that YouTube channel uh, where they analyze the historical accuracy of movies? Is it called History Buffs or something? Oh, I don't know. Oh, that it's sounds, a great that channel. Sounds I like an incredible waste of a week or two. It is because uh, I did. I, I went through all of Mel Gibson's movies one day oh, <laughs> on my no. day off, oh, no. where they go through Apocalypto, The Patriot. Uh, what's the We Were Soldiers, mm-hmm. Braveheart, and they just the the guy who does the the critique. Um, in his opinion, Mel Gibson is the most egregious perpetrator of revisionist history. Oh yeah, uh, like in Apocalypto, uh, when when these guys are taken to be sacrificed, and then at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, the, the he gets on the beach and the conquistas <laughs> show up. Historically, that doesn't happen for over another two hundred and fifty years. Right. So he literally just collapsed over four hundred years of history, actually, because you have overlapping empires. And you you completely ignore all of the culture and how they built villages back in those days. And the like, it was interesting that it's a nice story, though. It is a nice story. It's a great action movie Um, that at the height of the Aztec Empire, you couldn't go more than 12 miles without running into an Aztec city. Like they were building cities constantly. And where'd they go? They all got swallowed up by the jungle and they were all killed by... uh, a um uh what do you call it a pestilence pestilence yeah okay you just segued into what i was going to talk about how nice of i was going to read the article today and i didn't get to it now i'm going so to look for it again. they they finally figured out what killed over 20 million aztecs and basically wiped out aztec civilization and it's been debated for over 100 years by you know archaeologists because there's forth. dna in their teeth in their teeth exactly huh. so now they know definitively because in all of the the documentation, the disease is called cocolitzli, and cocolitzli okay. is just the Aztec word for pestilence, not helpful. So they thought it was smallpox. They thought it was all kinds of different diseases that the conquistas brought with them. Others argued no, it was uh, a cultural disease that had nothing to do with conquistas. But now they know definitively that it's actually they salmonella were- poisoning. Essentially, yeah. And then that that weakened their immune system and they get typhoid or whatever. And when they died, they buried them all in the same graveyard. Oh. And and they had Kokolitzli graveyards where everybody who died from these diseases, they buried them all together. Just like in Europe during the Black Plague, they would dump you in a pit and throw lye on you, which I think you can see in the movie Mozart. At the end of Mozart... There is that. They they at the end of Mozart they throw because Mozart himself died. You mean Amadeus? Amadeus, sorry, at the end of Amadeus. There we go. Self corrected. Thank you. That's why you're here. That's why you're the producer. Mm. You are the predator, the editor. That at the end of Mozart, 
or Amadeus, that's what happens too, is that, isn't he dumped in the pit at the end oh, with all the other, with all the other diseased bodies? And that's why yeah. I think that's the end of it. Salieri basically has him dumped in a pit with all the other uh, people who died from the black also plague. Also revisionist history. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Um, yeah, Salieri gets a bad shake in that movie too. He does. He wasn't nearly that either. though. Exactly, exactly. Excellent acting. But that that the Black Plague wiped out about half the population of Europe, about 25 million people mm-hmm. in the 14th century. In approximately 1545 to 1550, this is when this plague went through the Aztecs and killed about 15 to 20 million Aztecs mm-hmm. and wiped out their civilization. Mm-hmm. It's just fascinating to me that when Luther is kind of wrapping up his Genesis lectures and he himself is about to die, the Aztecs are dying of a plague. That to have a worldview of history is mind-boggling, that all these things are happening simultaneously. Yeah, didn't didn't uh, Dan Van Voorhees do that kind of this summer at Higher Things? Yeah, he did. Yeah, he kind of jumped around in his plenary and kind of Where showed world history. he was going history. from all around the world and showing what was yeah. happening at the time of the Reformation right. around right. the world. It's just crazy. Yeah. Just crazy. Because you have the Aztecs dying of a plague. You have Luther and the Reformation. You have the, the Scandinavians sailing to what eventually became North America. And, and there, there making, was quite literally something in the water. <laughs> yeah. It, like, how do you sail the ocean and not bump into somebody? There was so much traffic. It's crazy. Wow. So anyways, back to uh, history, uh, back to Edwards's book. But um, no, it just, it, it, that stuff fascinates me. Oh, we're t- we were talking about um, um, what the nature of the reform, you know, for being destructive or constructive. Right. That it wasn't at that time. It wasn't out of out of character. It wasn't out of the ordinary for religious leaders to call on a military intervention. Ah, yes, that's where we're going. Right, and and it wasn't uncommon then for priests, pastors to join in hmm. to fight. This did change with the Reformation, and yet the Magdeburg, the siege of Magdeburg, uh, proved that that wasn't. They didn't just change overnight. The siege of Magdeburg, they just locked themselves inside Magdeburg and said to the Roman Catholics, "We're not coming out, and we're not going to break the bread." We're not going to do the fractio panis. We're not doing it. Mm. You can make as many laws as you want. We're not going to do it. We'll, we'll die rather than do it. Right. So you have all these characters running around from 1522 to Luther's death in 1546. Um, for most part, they accepted the central teachings of the Reformation and the assumption, the biblical assumptions, the exegetical assumptions for the doctrine. But for them, they felt that Luther was still too Roman. He was still still too grounded in the in the pap- the papal teachings, and that Wittenberg was quote unquote too Catholic, right. which obviously persists to this day. Oh yeah, Catholic. Yeah, it's too Catholic. And uh, at sentence. the same time, there you go. It still makes no sense. At the same time, they came to conclusions that were different from Luther's on issues such as acceptable ceremonial practice, the real presence in the Lord's Supper, the separation of secular and spiritual authority, and the relation between law and gospel. Which we are still arguing about to this day. Oh, in other words, uh, what it means to be Lutheran, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, in the context of the 15th century, mm-hmm. what it means to be an evangelical. Oh, I see. I got you. Yeah. You know, that in the present tense, the American evangelical church has completely captivated that term. Yeah, that's but true. That's, that's the original uh, term that the Roman Catholics, the papacy, used to refer to what would later be called Lutherans. The evangelicals or the Protestants—they were referred to as Protestants too because they protested what transubstantiation, 
the papacy, all these different doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. They were called Protestants. They were protesters. And then the evangelicals lost that. They also lost the Protestant term. And then the Protestants took that up. Which is an important and, side note. I mean, uh, yeah. what does it mean to be a Lutheran? Is, isn't really isn't always a helpful question because it doesn't get to the nut of it to say, no, actually we're asking, what does it mean to be of the gospel? Yes, exactly. And I think this is the importance of this particular strain of history or vein of history and why it is important for Lutherans to know their own history. Because when you talk with your friends today who are Protestants, the formation of their confession to you begins with the Lutheran Reformation and with the Mm -hmm. Calvinist Reformation. So if you really want to understand the roots of your friend's confession of faith and why they could possibly think Jesus' body and blood are not present under the bread and wine. Yeah. You, you or baptism need to go back, doesn't save. Right, or baptism doesn't save. Or why the pastor doesn't vest or elevate or kneel or genuflect, whatever it might be. All the practices, the ceremonies that you might encounter in the Lutheran church or the contradictions that you might encounter in the Lutheran church. Mm between congregations, go back and read Luther's disputes with guys like Karlstadt, Munzer, Zwingli, Busser, and others, because that is the roots of Protestantism. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, they really haven't changed or innovated their teaching since those guys back in the 1500s put it forward. Like I said, you read Schwenkfeld's catechism. I don't really know many Protestants who would find any fault with anything Schwenkfeld says. (laughs) <laughs> because he spiritualizes everything. Uh, yeah. And yet he's, he has a Lutheran lexicon that he's using when he writes it, because he does believe he is more Luther than Luther, or more Lutheran than Luther. Yeah. Well, and that was the accusation from Calvin and others, that Luther right. wasn't wrong, he just wasn't right enough. Right. So, <laughs> he didn't go so far they enough. Weren't, they weren't arguing that Luther was wrong, and here is the, what do you want to call it, the, uh, the insidious nature of this. Mm, they weren't yeah. saying he was wrong, they were saying... We're just correcting you. Right. That this is a, we're offering a correction. We're not saying you're wrong. We're just trying to carry this forward mm. to its conclusion. Yeah. Luther, you stopped at the eight mile mark. We're going 10 miles. So we're going to pick the ball up and carry it the last. I'm going to mix analogies here, mix metaphors. You got to the 20 yard line. We're going to run the ball into the end zone for you. Okay. That's better. There we go. Not the last mile. <laughs> not the last mile, exactly. <laughs> but rather, this was the accusation that was lodged against Wittenberg and against Luther and the Lutherans. They didn't go far enough. Yeah, and it challenges and, our dialogue with uh, Protestants. It's actually a little harder, right? Yes. Um, because um, they'll say, well, we have so much in common with you. Yeah. And they'll even list these things. Oh, we have, right. we have Lord's Supper. We, we, right. you know, we have uh, a distinction between spiritual authority and right. secular authority. We, we, we know law and gospel, right? Right. And well, yet, this is- they, it's all just... There's a, there's often just a little twist away yes. from what we actually confess. Well, I don't think we appreciate Semper Reformanda, always reforming, isn't a Lutheran statement. Mm-mm. It didn't start off that way. It was actually a Calvinist statement. It was a Reformed statement. And if you think that it's not a big deal to say that we are always reforming, that statement comes out of this need to correct Luther and say, you didn't go far enough with your reforms, thus the peasants war. You didn't go far enough with your reforms, thus the arguments within your own faculty at Wittenberg. Uh-huh. We are always reforming because the church always needs to be reforming. Yeah. That's a very dangerous statement to say without qualification. Yeah. It's kind of, it's part of the institutional DNA of the LCMS, considering they, they left protesting. Yes. 
uh, right or wrong doesn't that's not really the point uh, the, and the first conventions were were conflict you know here's yeah, the things exactly. that we haven't that we need to fix <laughs> from the get go um, so what do you want to say the the negative way we've talked about that before right you know and so be careful when someone says, as Lutherans, we believe in separa reformanda. No, first of all, we don't believe in separa <laughs> reformanda. We believe Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, the Son of God, our Savior. We uncritically accepted separa reformanda from non-Lutherans and integrated it, adapted it for Lutheran usage. However, as a person who spent the better part of 18 and 19 years now studying Lutheran history and Martin Luther... Yeah. The way in which we use that term in the present tense has nothing to do with the Reformation no. as it was put forward by Luther and the Wittenbergers. We would say something more like always repenting. Yes, exactly. Always repenting. Yeah. Because that's what our catechism teaches. Right. To turn back and to God's work. That we are daily drowned and put to death through contrition and repentance. That always repenting, not always reforming. Because there's a violence inherited in that term, always reforming. Yeah, because what is the form that you're trying to attain? Exactly. What? Yeah, exactly. What are we trying to fix? What are we trying to tweak? <laughs> or go, or be. Right. And what what is Jesus's part in all this? What is the Spirit's part in this Reformation? I call it Reformation envy. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we read our we read our spiritual heroes, and we, we look around for an opportunity to do what they did. Oh, yeah. Hero, villain, fight right. battle. But yeah. Luther didn't have social media, and so we don't, even though he, more than any other probably church father or theologian, was we, is available to us through his own correspondences and writings because of the printing press, we don't know the intensity and profundity of the damage it did to him, yeah. both personally and interpersonally, existentially. Mm -hmm. The damage that all of the decisions... Again, you read his comments after the Peasants' War and yeah. how much that affected him for the rest of his life. Yeah. That his teachings could be used for this. Yeah, I mean, he ultimately died from an ulcerated gut, you know. Right, right. Probably, stre probably stress-related. Uh, <laughs> right. And do you really want to be a Martin Luther? And you, Do you really want to be a Jonah? Mm. Do you want to be a Peter? In the abstract, sure. Yeah, and but we thank God for him, too. Right, exactly. Yet God has not chosen to lay that cross on you or me, so be contented with that. Because as Luther himself says about a king versus a pig farmer, um, is it a pig farmer? What do you call A swineherd. Swine I don't know herd. what a modern sure. uh, translation of that term would be, a swineherd. But that a swineherd, a, a, a one who keeps pigs, his responsibilities, his vocation, his temptations are small in comparison to a king mm -hmm. and the temptations of a king. And Luther says a faithful swineherd is more blessed than <laughs> a king. Yeah. Because if a king falls, the whole nation may fall with him. And yeah. he not only destroys himself, he may destroy an entire nation, as First Kings shows. A swineherd falls, he might himself be thrown into hell, maybe his family, maybe a neighbor or two, but not the whole nation. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so therefore, he, Luther says, be content and satisfied being a swineherd mm -hmm. and be thankful that God did not decide to make you a king. Yeah. Yeah. Because so with social, then I mean, it's not it's not our, anyone's it shouldn't be anyone's aim to go try to fix everybody, right? No, no. So that's just so like, arrogance. Yeah, it is arrogant. And then, um, you know, if we're going to try to defend the faith, um, we don't necessarily need to seek out those opportunities. We already have them. They'll find you mm -hmm. if you are in the world. If you are in the world, not of the world, people will say to you, "You're different." 
But of course, there are people like Lewis who were clearly set apart to do that. Sure. To be a public defender of faith. Right. And in our vocations, we will be called to give an account for our faith, like Peter says. It's just not all, usually, it's never our choosing. Yeah, you don't have to seek it out. Right. So to continue then, as it happened, they were able to convince a large number of evangelicals to accept their positions over and against Luther's position. And consequently, they posed a major challenge to Luther's version of the gospel message and to his authority within the Reformation movement. This is something historically, again, that we don't know, don't pay attention to, we're naive about. In his own lifetime, Luther was turned into a parody of himself Uh by other people. He was a folk hero to some. To others, he was a devil. He was the seven-headed Luther. He was a harbinger of the apocalypse. Uh, Yeah, the the, the angel of revelation. The angel of revelation. He was the savior of the German people. He was the reformer of the church. He was many things to many people. He was never allowed to just be Dr. Martin Luther after 1520-21. And it's not as if he could get away from it either because people traveled from all over Europe, Eastern Europe, Scandinavia to come to him, to come Mm. to Wittenberg, stay at the Black Cloister, and just eat with him and, and pick his brain. Yeah, right. William Tendale spent a lot of time with Luther at his table mm-hmm. after he was chased out of England, uh, asking Luther to essentially compare translation notes. Yeah, quite a few of the, the um, kind of founding fathers of the Church of England studied in Wittenberg. Yes, you know, for which is time. why the King James Bible sounds an awfully lot like Luther's Bible, because they were working off the Tyndale Bible, mm-hmm. which was working off of Luther's Bible. That's right. That's right. Or um, the, you know, Luther's order for the Mass, it mm-hmm. looks pretty similar to the Book of Common Prayer. It really does. Mm-hmm. wonder why. <laughs> Go figure. Yeah. So you see a lot of Luther's influence, his fingers in a lot of different pies, so to speak. And yet, as with the Church of England example, they took Luther, or they took what they brought back from Wittenberg, and then it evolved. It was uh-huh. used for the, quote-unquote, counter-reformation. Yeah. Because, and, again, he didn't go quite far enough in their right. Well, especially for Henry VIII. Uh, <laughs> Luther went quite a ways with Henry. He did, as far as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just realized Henry VIII is a lot like President Trump. Oops. I just realized that as I brought him up. I'm like, he is a lot like Trump, actually. 6'2". Defender of the faith. Defender of the faith. 6'2", 230 or whatever. 239. Blamed everybody else. Plus or minus. <laughs> Plus or minus. Give or take an inch or two and 50 pounds. <laughs> uh, we're, not Anywho, being, we're not judging. No, I'm just having fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is just a conversation, folks. You're just tuning into a conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, no, it, again, it, and again, and again, again, slug bug. But for me, it's important to understand this history and know this history so that in the present tense, you recognize where where certain confessions or arguments come from. Right. They didn't just happen in 1968 or 1942 or 1886. They came out of the Reformation. Mm. And yeah. that just shows you the popularity of them. Going back to what we were saying about pop culture and pop music, right. this is pop theology. Hmm. Like it or not, pop theology is popular for a reason, <laughs> in that it appeals to a very wide base of people. And yet... There is a certain grain of truth to it, which is why it's appealing. 
Like any, any good lie is 90% the truth. And then at the end, it just veers into that lie. It's one of the but dangers if, that we have um, uh, in determining s- someone's success or failure based upon, you know, numbers and popular popularity. Yeah, yeah, popularity, because um, it, it isn't always easy to distinguish what the Spirit's work was. Right. Because it it's constructive or destructive. Right. Right? Repentance well, or faith. The one ditch is to be a popular pastor, for example. Mm-hmm. And to thrive, to put, like we've talked about, put your identity in your popularity as a pastor. That's the one ditch. The opposite ditch is to say, well, popular pastors are obviously doing something wrong. Therefore, they're unorthodox or unfaithful. Therefore, if I'm not popular, I am orthodox. (laughs) That's also uh, a ditch. Yeah. You may be popular simply because, like you said, the spirit's at work. Mm-hmm. And there are people that need the gospel, and you've been chosen to be the instrument of the gospel in that location. And therefore, you are popular in the sense of people are coming to hear the gospel. Yeah, hence the first, what, like 12, 15 years of the Reformation. Exactly. Likewise, if you're unpopular, that doesn't mean you're faithful or you're preaching a scandalous gospel that people in their sin reject. It could just mean that you're not preaching the gospel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and therefore, it's not a work of the Spirit. You're off in the weeds on your own. You're not preaching Christ crucified. But people like Karlstadt, people like Schwenkfeld, people like Swingley, they did to a certain extent look at like the Roman Catholic Church and ask what makes the church, the, the Roman Catholic Church, the church. Well, we'll just tear down everything that has to do with that then. It's like a child who grows up and says, I'm going to do the exact opposite when I become a parent of everything my parents did. Yeah, and then when you grow older, you realize, um, I didn't really avoid that. Right. <laughs> I thought I was going the other way. I ended up doing the same thing. Well, the opposite of heresy is heresy. Mm. Likewise, the opposite of not doing what your parents did is to fail in the opposite direction of your parents. Mm-hmm. And you end if up you being think very they much failed. the same. Yeah. Right. And yeah, in the end, you do come back because it's genetics, baby. You just can't mm-hmm. escape it. Mm-hmm. And so as Lutherans, because we try and walk the middle path, We're not Roman Catholic, but we're not Protestant. We're evangelical. We're in the way of the gospel, as you said. Mm -hmm. To know history, to be versed in not just the history of a theological argument. I don't necessarily think that's the most productive way to study history because it's like studying math. Mm. But rather to study the actual history as a guy like Bob Cole, we talked about in the last podcast, Mark Edwards, Heiko Oberman, uh, Jim Kittleson. Uh, that we we read from his biography of Luther, to read the actual history and understand what was going on on the ground at that time is almost more important in some instances than the actual argument itself. Yeah, it's so contextual. Right. Well, there's cultural arguments. There's communication problems. He's Swiss. I'm German. Yeah, How do we communicate political. with each other? Right. There's political. Of course, there's political. Politically charged atmosphere. There's all kinds of stuff going on. And to understand that is to understand the theologian himself. Right. And Luther, a lot of times, personality-wise, just ran over people. (laughs) It really wasn't the argument itself that allowed him to get people to agree with him. It was just the force of his personality. He could, like Melanchthon says this in the eulogy, that to to paraphrase, early on when, when Melanchthon was at Wittenberg, he was so young. He was still in his teens when he went to Wittenberg. Luther just steamrolled him by the force of his personality. And not in a mean way. It's just that Luther's zeal, his excitement, mm. was overwhelming. 
and the force of his personality made it impossible for you not to go, yeah, okay, I want to do that too. That's but the, then char- the charismatic leader we call that, right? Exactly, the charismatic reformer, the charismatic leader. And then as Melanchthon got older and matured and gained more experience, then he started to, di- to differ. He started to form his own voice, find his own voice, his own opinions. And this is why historically Melanchthon has been somewhat maligned and Luther has been lionized. Yeah. And yet, if it not for Melanchthon, the Reformation would have died because Luther didn't think it was important to systematize anything or, 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 to, or to, yeah, to actually make a good confession before the, right, before the emperor. Kinda, he's like, I wrote it. What's the problem? Well, we've got this faculty that needs a curriculum and uh, uh, we can't, you can't make an, an entire uh, seminary curriculum out of Romans 3.28. So how are we going to systematize this? That it, he, Luther could have cared less. He had more important things to do. But Melanchthon, on the other hand, is the great, he is the pedagogue of mm-hmm. Germany for over 500 years, essentially. Yeah. And yet, because Melanchthon's personality was such that he was, quote unquote, a waffler or, or tried to you know, have it both ways, uh, Luther, because of the force of his personality and the amount of, of writing, is still with us to this day. And Philip, even though he wrote as almost as much as Dr. Luther, not a lot of it's translated. Yeah, and a lot and a lot of our opinions of of Melanchthon and Luther both are informed by who did the introduction in the Triglata? Ah, uh, yeah, 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 yep, Bente, yeah, yep, Bente, yep, and and Bente, and he was no fan. Bente was no fan. Uh, who is it? Is Scott Keith? Did he do Melanchthon? Yes, yeah, he yeah. did Melanchthon yep. for his uh, doctoral work. Or yes, he did. Mm-hmm. And that's what I mean. Language has essentially made Melanchthon unavailable to us in the present tense. And therefore, you have to wait for someone to translate him for you if you want to read him and and learn about him and get to know him. And that language barrier cuts us off from a significant piece of the Reformation, literally 50% of the Reformation, if you want to look at it in in numbers and percentages. So nonetheless, that's the importance of history. That's the importance of going and finding these books even when they are out of print, and digging into the just the pure history of the Reformation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting how we make a value judgment about, um, you know, Luther's uh, condemnation of the Jews, you know, late in life, versus Melanchthon's, you know, very out of the Conf- Augsburg Confession. Right. And he's like, well, Melanchthon was clearly, you know, more in the wrong than Luther on the thing. Like, <laughs> I don't know if history actually bears that out. And they're both very challenging historical settings, right? Yes, yes. You know, I mean... Melanchthon was doing his best just to hold things together. Right. In a way. Well, and, and that's and maybe the thing. Mistake, As you still. point out, against the Jews, we can say of Luther, yeah, we just we don't listen to him there because he was just ugly and vitriolic, and we can explain that he was sick and old and blah, blah. <laughs> but nonetheless, no, we're not going to try and justify it. When Melanchthon later in life turns towards a what we would call a Reformed theology, mm-hmm. um. We don't really have a lot of scholarship with which to examine and analyze his turn. Yeah, that's right. Not in English. And therefore, as you pointed out, the the sources that are available to us in English are, one, dated, and two, not um, forgiving Yeah, in the way of the Eighth Commandment. They're very accusatory towards Melanchthon. And you do, you have a, in the boomer generation, Melanchthon, you talk to Luther scholars about Melanchthon and the boomers, they're not fans. No. They have nothing kind to say about him because that's the way they were taught. And I was taught that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, for us, it, it's amazing because because he's the founder of what we consider Lutheran education. You know, right? Day school education, yeah. which I went through. Not, yeah. not, not a lot of churches have schools still, and 
and, and he's the one responsible for that, you know, um, right. That emphasis. And he wrote the definitive commentary on Romans. Yeah, that's true. For the Reformation, 1541 Romans commentary. That's head and shoulders above Luther's commentary on Romans. Head and shoulders. I would argue it's definitely the best Romans commentary of the of that century. For sure, without a doubt. It's amazing. And yet it happened right in the midst of Melanchthon moving theologically away from quote-unquote Lutheran theology. And yet the commentary on Romans from 1541 is as Lutheran as it gets. Uh-huh. And we're going to... Nice. Ah. Uh, and we are definitely going to read the Romans commentary at some point, for sure. Um, it's just, it is... he Melanchthon's a systematic theologian. He's not like Luther, mm. who's more occasional, who's more like a, an Old Testament professor and thinks more in the way of the Old Testament, the Bible, which we talked about in the... Um, Borncom podcast, Luther in the Old Testament. And in that sense, when you read Melanchthon's Romans commentary, as we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, for someone who's seminary trained, it's a lot of fun to read. Yeah. Because it's just straight line theological, get in there, systematic theology type of stuff. For someone who's not trained in reading systematic theology, it can get really tedious. Mm-hmm. Because he'll spend pages on a preposition. <laughs> Or a clause. Yeah. just But he's arguing not just against Roman Catholics in 1541. He's, a, he's arguing against these evangelicals that we're talking about. Yeah. Or who was, who was mentioned here in our text that was even in the midst of um, Wittenberg? Oh, Agricola. Agricola. Yeah. Did you know that the faculty, that out of the dispute with Melanchthon and Luther's objections to Agricola, the faculty at Wittenberg was going to elect Agricola to be the chair of the philosophy department at Wittenberg? Huh. During the antinomian disputations. Yeah. So while this is happening, the faculty was going to put him in the chair for the head of philosophy. Luther wrote a letter to the faculty essentially saying, if you do this, I will burn this university to the ground. <laughs> and here are the reasons. And that was, again, one of those historical circumstances that we never hear about, which is the faculty looked at Luther and went, you're overreacting. You're being too vitriolic. This is hyperbole. It's not that bad. And Luther having to say, I'll burn the place down if you if you put that guy on the philosophy chair because, number one, I've already told you Master Philip is right and Agricola is wrong. Number two, Agricola teaches a different doctrine. Luther even says that he wouldn't even consider Agricola a Christian at the end of these debates. And he tried desperately to keep Agricola close because he did believe he could he could lead Agricola to repent mm-hmm. of what he was teaching. Mm-hmm. And then, and, and this is typical of Luther, Luther would Luther defended the Jews in 1528. 20 years later, when he saw that they were not converting, he, his, he turns around and he changes his opinion and says, no longer defending the Jews, now it's time to burn their synagogues and their books and kick them out of Germany. <laughs> he's not an anti-Semite, he's anti-not Christian. Yeah. Because he sees anything that's not Christian as being satanic mm-hmm. in its in its roots. And therefore Judaism, like any other religion is a public satanic attack on the gospel. And so what do you do to protect the gospel? Burn their synagogues and their books and kick them out of our country, Hmm. which to modern ears, that's kind of extreme. Separation church and state nonsense. Yeah. (laughs) Right. But pre-modern, that's what they did. Yeah. Well, you had a Christian prince, right? You had a Christian prince, Christian emperor, Uh, Christian, what's the Latin? Uh, uh, Quius Regio, Quius Religio, or vice versa. Yep. And so that's all in the mix when Melanchthon writes his commentary in 1541. There's opponents on every side. Some are in the faculty of Wittenberg. 
In fact, you read the formula of Concord, that all comes out of that. Yeah. That's a response to these arguments. You read the condemnations and the affirmations in the book, in the formula of Concord, in the solid declaration, especially. What do you see? We condemn the Anabaptists. We condemn these folks. We condemn these folks. We affirm this. We affirm this. That's the Why? audacity of, of someone like Agricola. I mean, who knows Luther and and actually does interact with him face to face, not yes. through social media. <laughs> yes. You know, and, and to say you're Luther, you didn't you're not going far enough. You're wrong. Right. Well, here's the key point about Agricola, though. Agricola agreed with Luther to his face, then went away and started writing letters. Yeah. That's right. And publishing treatises saying Luther's wrong. Yeah, and then didn't Luther bring those back then? That's what, in the end, that is what Luther brought back and said, this is why I can no longer defend you or apologize for you. And that he believed Philip was right. He believed Agricola was wrong. And yet he still believed he could bring Agricola around. And when he discovered that Agricola essentially lied to his face twice in those meetings, that's when he said, all right, I'm done. Mm -hmm. No more Eighth Commandment for you. This is a to- this is a toxic relationship. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think we just need time apart. Yeah, the 80-20 rule applies here. <laughs> That's right, exactly. <laughs> 80% of my stress in life is due to you, man. Exactly. Enough. So you got to go. <laughs> so this is the major challenge to Luther's version of the gospel message and to his own authority within the Reformation is all of these people are like little guppies hmm. just mouthing him to death, taking little pieces, piece by piece, they're picking away at him. And it's also then why Luther responds to them differently than he responds to the papacy. Edwards points this out when he addresses the antinomian disputations. When Luther responds to the Roman Catholics, he talks about our theology, meaning the Wittenberg theology, the, the, the Lutheran theology. He doesn't ever put himself forward. He cites the theology mm. because the Roman Catholics are looking at him, you're just one man. So Luther is responding to that accusation to say, it's not my personal theology I'm putting forth here. This is the theology of the Bible. This is the doctrine of the scriptures. And therefore, you are wrong. Right. When he argues against the evangelicals, he argues from his own personal teachings and authority. Because what they're saying is that he as a person had not gone far enough with the Re- Reformation. Hmm. And therefore, he's defending his teachings as Luther. They're attacking him as a person. The Roman Catholic Church is attacking his doctrine so to speak. Yeah. So like, like when Paul writes to the Galatians, what does he say? This is my gospel. The people that came in behind me that came from James and Jerusalem will tell you you have to be circumcised. This isn't just about doctrine. Yeah. This is about my gospel. And my gospel is the true gospel. And theirs is a false gospel. Yeah. You're talking and, life and death stuff. Right. Yet in Romans, what does Paul do? It's much more about the doctrine uh, and the scriptural doctrine than it is about himself personally. So he doesn't interject himself in as much as he does to the Galatian churches. He has a different relationship, different controversy, therefore different approach. Luther does the same thing. In fact, when he defends himself against the evangelicals, he often refers to himself as Paul, essentially. (laughs) Like just as Paul had to defend himself against the Galatians, I have to defend myself against these people. Because just like the Galatians were bewitched by this, these super apostles, that's what's happening here with the heavenly prophets and the fanatics. They're setting themselves up as being more Christian than Luther. Therefore, boom, here's my gospel. So there are several ways in which controversies between evangelicals and Catholics differed. Oh, here we go. Strikingly from controversies amongst evangelicals. In controversies between evangelicals and Catholics, Luther usually made an effort not to attach his name to the beliefs he espoused. Guess this is where I read it. I thought it was earlier in the book, but here uh, it is. Here it this is. is what happens when you read a lot 
memorize stuff, and then walk away. <laughs> Sorry, folks. Luther usually made an effort not to attach his name to the beliefs he espoused in controversies. When challenged by other evangelicals, he occasionally supplemented his theological arguments with claims about himself and his special role in the Reformation movement. Mm -hmm. In controversies between evangelicals and Catholics, each side accused the other of satanic motivation and exchanged the vilest personal abuse. <coughs> Excuse me. Your mother smelled of elderberries. Yeah, they smelled of elderberries. This is like, uh, I was listening to one of the people that serve on the FCC, mm. and she was one of the dissenting votes uh, for deregulating net neutrality, basically getting rid of it. Okay. And the comment was made... If the people who invented the internet had a choice today to not make it so democratic, they'd probably say yes, because look at how what's what has happened. Mm -hmm. And she corrected the interview and said, actually, we received emails from these men who invented the internet, who invented um, the, the web browsers, and they all unanimously said we are in favor of net neutrality. All right. This is essentially the argument Luther's making. Um, I'm basically the dude who started the Reformation, so I think that I know Lutheran theology better than you do. <laughs> yeah. And and this not, was Carl... Sch not only ahead. know the, the reason, the motivation, but also right. the goal. You know, what, what's the purpose? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Karl Stott, for example, and Agricola, because they had learned from Luther, they had lived with Luther, they were able to say, we're more Lutheran than you are. You've, you've backslid into Roman Catholicism, and now we are the it's true... so easy to do. It's so easy. Oh, yeah, of course. Well, just think about our professors that we learned from and how quickly we can turn on a dime and say, well, I mean, he was good in this part, but he was really... This, this part right here, he was wrong. Yeah. Other than, I think, Dr. Nagel... <laughs> who I, I never actually really question to probably to my own detriment, but I, when mm -hmm. I read Dr. Nagel, I don't really question what he's saying. Cause I'm just like, yep. Yeah. <laughs> I'm into that. But yet we do that constantly, not just with our, our seminary professors, but with our spiritual elders. Well, I mean, I mean, honestly, some of them were kind of, you know, manic. Oh, hippy dippy baloney. Of course. <laughs> <clears throat> oh yeah. They Maybe were living more in the past. So, more so for you probably, but yeah. Well, hundred percent, hundred percent. For your there's content. a reason. There's a reason I'm an LCMS pastor, right? And a uh, large part of that was my seminary education at uh, Luther Seminary in St. Paul. It it forced a confession out of me. Let's put it that way. There you go. And in that sense, I I give thanks every day that I went to that seminary. Yeah, despite negative all of, examples uh, work, right? It, that was my three days in the belly of the giant fish. Okay. It just okay. lasted a long, much longer time. Ten years? Yeah, ten years. Four years for my master's and then six years for my PhD. Oh, that's depressing. Wow. Okay. Refocus. Ten years of your life. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. <laughs> You'll get over it. Yeah. No, I don't think so. <laughs> no, there's no getting over it. It's like, it's like going back and watching Saturday morning cartoons that you mm. grew up with. Mm -hmm. I, there, you can watch these on YouTube where people have posted on YouTube entire blocks of Saturday morning TV okay. with, the com with the commercials and everything, right? You can literally relive an entire morning of Saturday morning yeah, cartoons. That were on VHS or something, right? So yeah. So I'm watching cartoons from, I think, 1978, along with all the commercials. And the, the shows I grew up with are terrible. <laughs> They're so bad. 
the 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 cartoons are you, are so, your memory of them is, are it's pretty that's good. That's what I'm saying though is that my memory is pristine, <laughs> and then you go back and watch it, and they're 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 so slow. Every episode's the exact same plot. <laughs> the the special effects are so hokey, and and you watch it and go. Oh, that's why they're remaking all of these things into TV shows and movies. They're mm-hmm. selling us on the nostalgia of it mm-hmm. and saying, whatever you do, though, don't go back and revisit this. Right. Yeah. That's no longer canon. <laughs> right. Well, I grew up reading the the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle graphic novels. Oh, yeah. So when the cartoon came on TV, I was one of the early folks who said, this is nothing like the comic book. Mm. No, this is a breakfast cereal commercial. Right. Exactly. In fact, all of the cartoons I grew up watching were essentially commercials. That's because all they, they all had their breakfast cereals. Exactly. And their action figures. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a show on Netflix now called The Toys We Grew Up With or something. Okay. I think I mentioned this on the podcast before. It's awesome. Maybe. You got to watch it. The first episode's about Star Wars and how, how really Lucas monetized the franchise. Yeah, that was his creative genius, really. Right. Well, his creative genius was just to say... We're going to sell you the rights to this, and we want to see what you're going to do. And it just exploded. Hmm. And it's, it, but it's fascinating to watch it because it's really the history of the toy industry too, and how the 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 prequels when they came out essentially bankrupted Star Wars merchandise. It's fascinating to watch um, because the company that built that made the original action figures, the Star Wars figures, they also made the um, same. Uh, action figures and product merchandise for the prequels. And the response to the prequels was so negative that they actually ended up essentially going bankrupt. Because so is the show you're talking about the toys that made us? That's it. The toys that made us. Got yeah. it. Okay. Got it. Because with the original Star Wars stuff, they were overwhelmed. They were, you remember, for those of you listening, there was a time when they said, buy the act, like you could go to the store and buy an empty box an empty Star Wars box that then they promised when the action figure was, was actually made, they would send it to you. Hmm. So you would buy the product, send in the label off the box. And then when it became available, they would send it to you because they were out of stock all the time. So when the prequels came out, they pre-made millions and millions and millions of pieces of merchandise so that that, that wouldn't happen again. That's why they ended up bankrupting themselves. Because they had warehouses full of merch that nobody was buying. Because they were they were too late. It was they new, were too late. New and generation the prequels in new generation, and the new generation didn't bite down because the parents who grew up with the original trilogy took their kids to the prequels, yeah. and the parents are the ones buying the toys. Yeah, and the parents collectively didn't like the prequels. Well, and by the and, time of the prequels, Saturday morning TV is done. And Saturday morning TV is over because they passed Congress passed new legislation about how much content had to be educational and how much could be mm-hmm. marketing. Uh, marketing, and that changed everything. Yeah, in the mid '90s, early to mid '90s. So it's a fascinating series, though, to watch what was happening behind the scenes when you and I were growing up playing with Luke Skywalker <laughs> and the X-wing fighter and, and so forth. Well, I didn't have one, but I played with my friends. But yeah, yeah, I had I had the Land Speeder and the X-wing fighter. And then my friend had the Millennium Falcon, all the really cool stuff that we couldn't afford. There you go. That's what friends so, are for. Yeah. Well, you always it was always fun when you were little to have that one friend whose family had money that could mm-hmm. afford all the really cool toys. You always went and played at his house. <laughs> He's the one who had the... Like, I had Legos, but my friend had the Lego sets. 
So ah, yes. I I made uh, an X-wing fighter out of the block Legos, yeah, and then just from the imagined generic it kit, was, right? Right. You imagined it was the X-wing fighter. My friend actually had the X-wing. Your, fighter your X-wing Lego was set. was red and blue and green. And- yeah, exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yep. So that was the difference between the rich kid and the poor kid. Hmm. So, anyways, back to Luther. So Luther made usually made an effort not to attach his name to the beliefs he espoused. When challenged by other evangelicals, he occasionally supplemented his theological arguments with claims about himself and his special role in the Reformation movement, which raises a secondary thought for me. We do this all the time now, hmm. and I think this is actually detrimental, where if you and I are debating with each other, I will, I will quote a theologian to you to prove my author, or authority or orthodoxy over and against your theologian you're quoting to me. Right. Versus what does scripture say? Like some kind of pedigree, right? Right, exactly. That, well, I'm quoting this theologian, and he's more legitimate than your theologian, and therefore I'm more orthodox than you, versus what does Scripture say? How about we judge the theologians we're throwing back and forth (laughs) at each other by whether or not they agree with Scripture? Right. Like you said, are they in the way of the gospel? Hmm. Do Do they teach law and gospel properly? Where do they stand on the sacraments? These kinds of things. Yeah, because that's actually an empirical statement. Right. Well, you brought up in the last podcast the answers in Genesis type of stuff. Oh, did I? Yeah, you did. Is that it was a lucid <laughs> moment maybe. Yeah. But before you go quoting Ken Ham for example as as an authority on creationism, mm-hmm. where does he stand on on the Lord's Supper? Mm-hmm. Where does he stand on the relation of the word of God in the Old Testament? Mm-hmm. And the word of God being the second person of the Trinity. Where does he stand on the incarnate Christ in relation to Genesis chapter 1? Right. Because as Lutherans, we actually think that's important. It's not a small thing. So, bef- And I use that as an example because it's a present tense example, and people like to quote Ken Ham to me. Because those are, for us, the confession of the gospel. Right. Or I would, right. They, well, yeah. I would say Genesis 1 is a confession of the gospel. Because John chapter 1 says it is. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so you quote Ken Ham to me, I'm going to quote R. Lewis to you. <laughs> and then we'll go from there. You don't like Art Lewis because he teaches at Oxford and he believes in microevolution or whatever. He doesn't actually believe in microevolution, but a form of it. I can't really suss it out because I'm not a physicist. Um, I, and I don't agree with everything Art Lewis says, but I also disagree with even more of what Ken Ham says, which gets me in trouble, I know. But well, and, and Ken I'm, Ham's I'm, interesting I'm, to this conversation because at the uh, Creation Museum, he has an exhibit on Luther and the Word of God. Right. And so he co-ops Luther for his own benefit. Right. That's yeah. a great point. And, and again, I'm not saying don't listen to Ken Ham or don't go to the Creation Museum or don't listen to his argument. What I'm saying is don't be throwing Ken Ham around before you first take a step back and ask, is he in the way of the gospel? Is he in the way of Christ in the gospel? Is he in the way of how Lutherans read scripture? Mm-hmm. Or are we simply co-opting his argument because we don't like the counter argument that's coming at us from culture or another Christian body? Right. Well, you know, the, the dirty secret um, is that a confession of Genesis as being true doesn't save you. Right. But being a exactly. true is in a sense of a scientific sense, I suppose. Right. That's what we want to say. Right. You know, that's not the saving gospel. Well, we end up denigrating science and the Bible. Yeah. And it's not going to, it's not going to keep our kids in the church either. Right. It doesn't, as a friend of mine once said, whether or not you accept the theory of evolution, Jesus still rose from the dead. Mm-hmm. He died and rose. He died and rose. Legit. <clears throat> Historic fact. Exactly. So rather than debate, with an evolutionist, simply go, Jesus still rose from the dead. Or like we were talking about in the last podcast, whether the earth is flat, pear-shaped. Actually, Columbus thought the earth was pear-shaped. Oh, really? Um, yeah, that's why he sailed the way he did. 
he was a moron. People don't really understand how stupid this guy was. <laughs> he was a good salesman, though. Apparently, because they he was lost <laughs> all the time. His own crew mutinied. It was constantly trying to mutiny against him. He didn't have. I mean, he knew. Did he ever get back to? He he got back one more time, right? One more time, and then they. He was the governor. That's right. And he was so bad that they essentially kicked him off the island. <laughs> he was a moron. He like, was not a survivor. No, he was not someone we should celebrate. Let's put it that way. Again, pop culture. Columbus Day. Pop, Columbus Day in pop culture is one thing. The truth about the man, whole different thing altogether. Whatever. You can use him for an excuse not to go to school. It's fine. Exactly. I'm 100% in favor of anybody who wants to give me a day off of anything. <laughs> you want to have Pope's Day? I'm all in favor of it. Let's have a day for the Pope. I don't care. <laughs> as long as I get a day off of work. Oh, man. <clears throat> but nonetheless, this is the thing that... This is why Luther did not try and put himself out in front and say, this is Luther talking now. Right. But rather, this is what Scripture says. Hmm. And when he did put his, himself forward, as you pointed out, he's trying to put forward his motive. And he's trying to say, this was my goal. This mm-hmm. is where I'm going with this. And where Luther is ultimately always going is, where's Christ? Right. Because Luther, first and foremost, is a pastor in the sense of he wants troubled consciences, terrified consciences to be comforted and consoled by the gospel. Mm-hmm. So even in his preaching of the law, he's driving to the gospel. Whereas a guy like Agricola gets rid of the law, he thinks, and then thinks he's going to preach the gospel in such a way that he can basically bring you to repentance. Yeah. But all he ends up doing is nagging you with the gospel. <laughs> yeah. He defangs the law and he basically strips the gospel of its sweetness. Right. Which is uh, arguably, um, that is the kind of this, the center of, of ref- what becomes Reformed theology. Right. right. Which is, um, you know, that, that the scriptures are given as a guide. And that's the principal right. use of the scriptures. Which is why church discipline is one of the marks of the church mm-hmm. in Reformed theology, yeah. in Calvinist theology, where it's not in Lutheran theology. The mark of the cross is the mark of the church in Lutheran theology right. in place of that. Right. Yeah, the gospel not as enabler, but actually a savior. You know, yeah, Christ is exactly, savior. exactly. So go to scripture, and then address your theological heroes or your theological arguments in relation to scripture. And then it's actually it again, as we've talked about, when you set the boundaries, especially the exegetical boundaries, it sets you free within those boundaries to actually dialogue with people that you may not agree with. Or completely agree with without saying, damn you all to hell, I'm not going to talk to you. But rather like Luther with Agricola, you go as far as you can with this person in the hope that yeah. in the in the course of the dialogue, the spirit would work in such a way that we become instruments of this person's repentance and they come to the truth of, the, of Christ. So going back then to the text, uh, Luther occasionally supplemented his theological arguments with claims about himself and his special role in the Reformation movement. In controversies between evangelicals and Catholics, each side accused the other of satanic motivation and exchanged the vilest personal abuse. In controversies among evangelicals, the accusations of demonic possession and the ad hominem abuse tended to come more from Luther than from his opponents. Munzer would be one exception. <laughs> Likewise, Luther would have... If Luther had social media... Oh, my. Oh, I don't know if he would, if he would have uh, received it on... You know, on or critically, you know? Yeah, right. I, I think he would have just uncritically accepted it, and uh, who knows? <laughs> and ran with it, and then correct, course-corrected as he went. Hopefully. Oh, man. I don't know. It's well, projection. Think about 
how often he was running downstairs in the Black Cloister to have his printing press warmed up so he could get that treatise out the door. Yeah. At least he had time to think from the time he left his study to the basement and then as it went out the door. With with a smartphone, he would just be tweet. He, okay, I'm going to say it. Luther would essentially be the Donald Trump of Twitter. I know. You were going to say he it. He would I be. You were going to say it. He, I'd wake up in the morning and I'd be like, you posted 23 times at 3 o'clock in the morning, Martin? What are you doing? <laughs> you have to teach this morning. And Luther would be like, uh, that Munzer, that Munzer, he got me all worked up. <laughs> I, was, I was watching Fox News. <laughs> Katie takes away his smartphone. <laughs> you will not look at your smartphone during dinner. Incidentally, kids, uh, before you write the angry email... Uh, just yeah. leave it in your as a draft and uh, right. come back next morning. That's right. <laughs> Have fun. Again and again, Luther accused Zwingli, Oikolampadius, Busser, Agricola, Bullinger, Schwenkfeld of being false brethren and lying hypocrites. But these men generally acknowledged that Luther was a fellow Christian, even though he erred. And although Catholic and evangelical opponents alike attacked Luther's authority, whereas the Catholics attempted to discredit it entirely, the evangelical opponents rarely asserted that Luther had no legitimate authority, insisting only that Luther, like any other man, could be an heir. Which, ironically, was Luther's argument against the papacy at Worms. Yeah. Is that the Pope can and does err because he's human. Yeah, which is, uh, it's, in- it's interesting because they're, they're very ecumenical, right? Yeah. yeah. The whole, this whole crowd that they're like, well, we, we want to accept Luther and we want to use Luther, so yeah. we're not going to condemn him. Um, or discredit him entirely like like Rome does because mm-hmm. because we need him in order to justify our movement. Well, we also need the protection of the Lutheran princes because mm, okay. the Roman Catholic, the emperor is going to come down and squash us. Yeah. Which happened, uh, Munzer was chopped into pieces. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. Uh, there were many a reformer who uh, was chopped up, mixed with pig manure and then thrown into a river. Ooh. Uh, Jan Hus, uh, John Wycliffe was dug up after he died and that happened to him. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. No, Hus was burned on the stake. So yeah, that's right. But he was still ground up with pig manure and thrown in the, in the river. That's what they did. Uh, so it was no small thing as we, they were ecumenical, not only because of the fear of consequence, if they broke from the Lutheran princes, but also ecumenical in the sense that they didn't see themselves as being a different church, but rather simply carrying forward the reforms of Luther to their theological conclusions. Mm-hmm. something that Luther said, no, you've gone too far, you're out of bounds. And also remember, as Luther gets older, he is less and less tolerant of other opinions. Yeah. And if you don't understand how that works, go hang out with your grandparents. That's right. <laughs> yeah, for them, it's all or nothing, right? Right. Yeah. Well, you've lived a life, you, you got 10 good years left, maybe. <laughs> what do you care? Just ain't got time for that. Try these augmented reality glasses. I don't have time. Not interested. I'm good, right? Yeah. It's like the meme where it says we finally fixed mom's remote control and it's just duct tape. It's just the power button and the channel <laughs> button. Everything else is just duct taped. So you can't get to it. Just simple. Or the same thing with the cell phone. There's right. the on off button and the call button on the cell phone. Everything else is taped down so she can't access it. Yeah. And I don't know, going back to what we started with, I don't know if as we get older, that's going to be us, though, because yeah. we're a part of the integration. And because, like I said, we grew up with it moving so fast. I wonder if there's ever a point where we, as we get older, say, you know what, that's enough. Yeah. I was having a conversation at the uh, Higher Things Summit, which is board directors, executives and staff. Some mm-hmm. of us, most of us. Some of us uh, were grounded uh, by weather. Anyway, um, 
<laughs> we were talking about the uh, over meal. I was just talking about kind of the effect of um, what were we talking about? I think it was Star Trek, um, the morality of Star Trek, the original series. Yeah, and ha- and how it how it really did shift the ball, you know, to uh, mm-hmm. with the with the whole um, sexual movement. Of course, yeah. it was with blue alien ladies, but yeah, you know, but it started that anyway. Right. And uh, uh, how it was kind of received uncritically, didn't really get it, you know. But yeah, that Roddenberry went as far as he could with right. with his own kind of uh, opinion. So right at that time, at that time, and then again later, producers, writers, and so forth, they took the show. And they moved it forward. That's right. And but, I'm sure. What's the new What's the new Star Trek? Show oh, on, Discovery. Is that what it's called? Is it on ABC? No, it's on CBS, CBS All Access, All Chant- Access subscription. Yeah. yeah. Way to shoot yourself in the foot with that one. That's the That's only product that they have on that mm-hmm. channel that you want to watch. Right. But I, I imagine, just as Disney has Disneyfied Star Wars, mm-hmm. <laughs> that CBS will do what they do to take the franchise and use it as a vehicle to push their ideology. Would you be surprised that um, all of the leadership are women? women? And <laughs> yeah, not surprising. Um, and all the men are bumbling idiots who get them in trouble constantly and have to be rescued. That's true. And let's see what else. Oh, yeah, because all the men are Klingons, actually. Um, <laughs> is that you meant that like literally the race is Klingon or that? Yes, like, exactly. Metaphorically speaking, they're all really clingy. Right. Actually, are, are there any men on the ship? I have to think about that now. I've only watched a couple episodes. Oh, yeah. Well, here's the thing with the social, the social justice warrior movement has essentially done this. We're going to write roles for women that are essentially just roles for men. And the roles that we traditionally give to women, we're going to give to men and call them men's roles. So you watch a movie with a woman as the lead protagonist, but more often than not, you could just swap them out with a man and it would yeah. be the same character. Yeah. Well, that like, was the case was, with uh, Thor Ragnarok, right? Well, the so villain. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, the villain. Because, uh, well, I haven't seen it because I know. It's Kate Blanchett. You know? <laughs> right. I know. Yeah, exactly. But I'm saying I know I know the direction the movie's going. Right. Just from the interviews that I saw with uh, Taika Waititi. Mm, right. Yeah. And talking about the, the plot and the script and everything, I was like, I know where this is going. Yeah. And again, I have nothing. I have no problem whatsoever with a female lead. I have no problem with that whatsoever. But if you're going to write a female lead character, write a female, not a dude in a female costume kind of role. Because mm-hmm. to me, that's disingenuous. Likewise, don't make men. It's like when people say, I don't see gender, but then argue, well, I was born a woman. <laughs> wait, wait, back it up. <laughs> I actually had this conversation. That's why I bring it up. I had a conversation with someone who said, well, I was, I I was born this gender, but I'm really this gender Mm. right after telling me my whole problem is that I, I focus too much on gender. And after the brain juice squirted out of my eye, (laughs) I asked, do you not see the contradiction in what you just said to me? This person didn't see there being a contradiction in what the argument about this person's argument. And I recognized, oh, we can't have a conversation now because I just draw, drew out the dissonance in your argument, the, the contradiction in your own argument. Mm-hmm. And you're, you refuse to see it, and therefore we can't dialogue. Yeah. And I think this is the problem that Luther has when he sits down at the table, is that at a certain point, doctrinally, theologically, he says to the person across the table, do you not understand you're contradicting yourself right here? Mm-hmm. And the person argues, I'm not. Yeah. Essentially what, what is happening is you're trying to set the rules for the debate. And once you've set the rules, you've won the debate. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened at Marburg, right? Right. It happened at Marburg. Exactly. 
It's this like, is why we, we can't. The, this last point isn't immaterial. <laughs> right. You know, or point and a half or whatever it was. Well, going you know, back to what we're talking about. If I use Saze to argue against your theologian, what I'm doing in essence is I'm laying the, I'm laying the, the, the rules down, the ground rules. What Saze says on the Lord's Supper are the rules. And if we're going to debate the Lord's Supper, you have to follow the rules that Saze follows. Otherwise, you're wrong, I'm right, you're heterodox, I'm orthodox, I win. And then you counter with your theologian and say, nope, here are the rules, and I win. And we hurl accusations back and forth and epithets, and we, like, as Edwards points out, we demonize our opponent. Mm-hmm. And that allows us then to dismiss them. It's, it's, it's actually just kind of uh, lazy. Very lazy, very lazy. Luther would spend weeks arguing with people, even years. Like in Agricola's case, he spent years trying mm-hmm. to bring him around. We spend moments. Yeah. Because, again, of social media, the internet, and the way we interface and interact with each other, we spend moments debating with each other. But those moments are strung together like pearls mm. and never fully form uh, a dialogue. Right. They're just sentences flying into the ether. Well, and we so easily cut cut off dialogue. Uh, and I mean, there is a point where you might need to say, you know, I can't be a, this. I, this relationship can't continue on this level, right? Like Luther right. did with Agricola, but but not. But even that is not um, exclusionary or condemnatory, right? It's like you can, yeah. we can come back to the table, um, right? But we're going to have to deal with this, right? Well, look at your own life. How many how many different theological points have you changed on over mm-hmm. the course of your life? Just from the say the time you were you got done with confirmation, yeah. How much have you changed your mind about the liturgy? Well, practical or presiding over the liturgy. Absolutely. Yeah, practical matters. Mm-hmm. Practical matters is what I'm saying. Yeah. Or how much have you changed your your point of view on the importance of the sacrament being the body and blood of Christ? Mm-hmm. Or receiving because it regularly. Receiving it, exactly. Receiving it regularly, exactly. Or the value of exegesis mm-hmm. in being a theologian of the church. Or ongoing as, catechesis. Exactly. Study. Exactly. Yeah. Is that if you if you take a person as a snapshot and then that's that person is static. They never change, they never grow, they never change their mind, they never learn, they never go through experiences, they never gain wisdom. And you treat them as, well, this is who you were five years ago, so that's who you are now. As you pointed out, it's lazy, but it also, it saves me the trouble of having to listen to you. Right. And your opinion, your ideology, your theological point, your whatever confession of faith, I can just dismiss it. You're a demon. Yeah. (laughs) I don't have to listen to you now. You disagree with me. Well, that's fine. But you you essentially cut off all like I was saying at the beginning too of when I was reading C.S. Lewis mm-hmm. and people just dis, you know my friends dismissed him outright. Yeah, but I was trying to just learn. I was brand new. I was getting in the water for the first time, right. and by discouraging me from reading someone who does write quote unquote for the popular person, the popular mindset, popular meaning in the sense of like the population, the populace, the mm-hmm. common man, the laity. And by basically saying that I have to go right to the hardcore theology from the very beginning, you're actually discouraging me from engaging theology. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's, it is kind of a fight, and you have to back off and come back. Yeah, right. You know? Well, yeah, again, context, motives, emotions, where you're at at that particular time. Right, whether it's interpersonal or it's dealing with, with some yeah. book or text. Precisely. Um, you may not be ready for it. Right. 
And so that is, at least in the context of Edwards's book, something that is helpful when you study history and read history, pure history, not history of doctrine. It, it alerts you to the fact that there was a time when Lutherans talked to each other mm. and talked to people they disagreed with, not once or twice, but for years. Yeah. And only when that bridge was burned did the Lutherans push and walk away from the table, for the most part. I mean, there's always exceptions, yeah. but they don't prove the rule. Sazi talks about this, Herman Sazi talks about this quite often of, of Lutherans being infamous for wanting, for always being willing to sit down at the table. Really? And, and try and hammer out a compromise. Yeah. That it was the Lutherans who were known to be the ecumenical ones in the sense of let's sit down and talk about this and see if we can't come to, you know, the middle. Not necessarily the liberal ones. No. Yeah. No, just Lutherans. Yeah. Whereas today we'd probably we we would accuse you know that's what liberal Lutherans look like right that's they, yeah those liberals they're always they're, trying they're always trying to reconcile without actually dealing with doctrine or something right versus the example of I think you used the example of the priest who died on the steps of the brothel oh I did yeah that what do you suspect <laughs> that was Don Yelu by the way if you want to know okay Roman was Catholic he ministering priest. to the people in the brothel mm-hmm. or was he frequenting the brothel well mm-hmm. where do we jump to. You know, mm-hmm. likewise, when you're sitting at a table and the picture's posted on Facebook of you sitting at a table with an Episcopalian, a Roman Catholic and a Methodist, you know, wh- wh- why are you, why, what are you doing? Are you, are you, are, are you, you one disca- of those guys? Yeah. You're one of those people. Mm-hmm. Are you in, are you in uh, social media fellowship with non-Lutherans <laughs> or are you eating dinner and having a conversation about the Lord's supper with people you disagree with? attempting to apologize in the sense of this is what Lutherans believe and this is why we believe it's a biblical teaching. Whether they're Christian or not even, even if they're non-Christian, I'm, uh, that's a, maybe maybe we have an easier time justifying that because we're, we're speaking well, for that, conversion. That, that we can define as evangelism. That's right. That's versus right. if I sit down with uh, an Episcopalian or, or a Presbyterian, for example. The big word being heterodox, right? Right. That I can't sit down at a table with a Presbyterian to discuss the Lord's Supper because I did that. I, I sat down with a Presbyterian minister who asked why, if he came to my church, I wouldn't commune him. And I said, here's why. Yeah. And he said, well, I just don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. And I said, that's why I won't commune you. <laughs> you just answered your own argument. And he said, but haven't we moved past all that? Yeah. Aren't those just old Reformation arguments that are just hanging? It's a hangover. Mm. And I said, obviously not, since we're still talking about it. Yeah. Hey, again, here's the text. Right. Uh, let's go, you know, go read them. We'll, we'll and talk he asked again. It, and, he, and in the end of the conversation, we talked for about three hours. He asked if I would be willing to write a book with him discussing this in a book form okay, so that other people could read it. And I said, I'd love to do that. I think that would be phenomenal. Kind of like Luther and Erasmus. Yeah, exactly. Well, and no, in the sense of like, if more if collegial, the topic, but yeah, <laughs> if, if the topic were the Lord's supper, hmm. he would put forth the, the Calvinist teaching on the Lord's supper. And I would put forth a Lutheran teaching on the Lord's supper. And then the, the conclusion of the epilogue would be why or why not. We believe that there can be agreement or further division because of our understanding of this doctrine. Who is it? Uh, which publishing house does the the Four Views series? Mm, no idea. Mm, on the Lord's Supper, they have one. Yeah, Understanding mm. Four Views on the Lord's Supper. Uh, yeah. It's kind of the same idea. Uh, it's Kindle ebook. I don't know. Uh, we have I like it. contributors to these things. I like it not so much as a negation of other theology or other doctrine, but rather so that people can stop saying to me as a pastor, don't we all basically believe the same thing? Yeah. This to have a, someone just this... publish it and go, here, here is a definitive statement from an actual Presbyterian. 
Here's an actual statement from a, a definitive statement from an actual Lutheran. And here's what they say. <laughs> now you can see we're not the same. I was going to say four views on hell, second edition. Uh, one of the contributors is Preston Sprinkle. Do you know? I do know Preston. Yeah. yeah so trying to get, you know, just from, well, let's see what Lord's Supper, David Scare. He's contributed nice. to that one. Yeah. Nice. So, you know, a Lutheran voice and they try to dialogue with each other. They actually, yep. if I remember the series right, they each get an opportunity to like give a one paragraph response to each other's sure. article. Yeah. So it's kind of nice. So maybe more of that and less grandstanding would be mm-hmm. helpful in the present tense. Going back to what I said about integrity and, and trusting the church, because I don't, people, I don't have many experiences where people left church because we exclude certain people from the table. When I explain it in an evangelical sense, in an evangelical Mm -hmm. way, which is to say, I'm not trying to exclude them, but rather they've excluded themselves by not accepting the fullness of the biblical teaching on the Lord's Supper. Yeah. And that I'm not the one excommunicating them. They've excommunicated themselves. It's like if I pronounce forgiveness in Jesus's name to you and you say, I don't believe it. Hmm. I didn't withhold forgiveness from you. You rejected forgiveness. Right. So therefore, you can't judge me for being judgmental when the judgment was you're absolved. <laughs> yeah, it's the same with baptism, right? Exactly. Yeah. Likewise, then, when we approach it from the perspective of, well, if you're not Lutheran, you can't come to the Lord's table. True, but go deeper. <laughs> that's a very lazy, to me, my opinion, that's a very lazy thing to say, a very lazy argument. Well, if you're not Lutheran, you can't commune here. But, but what do Lutherans believe about the Lord's Supper? <laughs> what is the evangelical confession that we have regarding the Lord's Supper? And can we can we teach the the small and large catechism in the in the in that moment of the conversation in such a way that we are teaching catechetically, we are confessing evangelically, and we are presenting in such a way that we're explaining to the person, pastorally speaking, I want you at the table with us. I consider you my Christian brother or sister. Mm-hmm this is what I see is holding you back. And here where in scripture, God himself has published his definitive word on this matter. Right. That when we eat his body and drink his blood, we confess his death till he comes again. (laughs) Or unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, there's no life in you. These are definitive statements by Jesus and the apostle. Therefore, we as Lutherans tend to just take that at face value, that that's what it means. We don't understand it. It's a mystery. And yet, because our Lord Jesus Christ says it, we say amen. Right. And if you knew your own history, we could go back to the roots of this debate, and we would see that the same argument that Luther makes is the same argument that I make, not surprisingly, and the same argument that Schwenkfeld makes is the same argument that you make, not Mm. surprisingly, because we are children of the Reformation. Right. And in the grand scheme of human history, 500 years is nothing. (laughs) <laughs> it's just not. It took them almost 500 years just to come out with the Nicene Creed. I mean, I'm exaggerating by a couple hundred years, a little over a hundred years. My point being, though, you look at how long it took them to ratify the Nicene Creed or the yeah. Athanasian Creed. Yeah. And then you look at the Reformation and our distance from the Reformation. The amount of time they spent arguing over the creeds in the early church, practically speaking, is about the amount of time that it's been from us to the Reformation. Yeah. It's interesting, too, though. Uh, I mean, there's obviously a lot of distinction between all these reformers, and Mark um, Edwards, the author, is kind of painting a little bit with a broad brush about them, right? Mm-hmm. You know, but that, that they all had kind he's of not this, Lutheran. Yeah, they all had this common uh, thread that, that that they wanted to take Lutheran go, you know, further. Right. 
Right. And Mr. Edwards, Professor Edwards, Dr. Edwards would be a child of the Reformation. Mm-hmm. And therefore, not only draws from Luther, but draws from these other theologians as well, as you and I do, as all the listeners do. But we just don't know it a lot of times. We're naive to it. But I guess, the, I mean, the, the interesting aspect of it is, is that even, um, you know, what does it mean to be truly evangelical? That's that's not monochromatic. I mean, it, right. it, has, it has a central theme, but it, it doesn't necessarily play out exactly mm-hmm. the same everywhere at because as we right. said, there's always there's always repentance, uh, meaning that there's always unbelief yeah. and error happening. Yeah. Um, right. That we don't see our own weakness, blind spots, you know, uh, right. confusing practice. Well, it's like when whatever. you do a genetic test online and it comes back that your ancestry is you're part Ethiopian mm. and you thought you were straight Irish. So it's like, <laughs> wait, what? But I'm Irish and German. And they're like, no, you're Ethiopian. <laughs> You have Ethiopian blood in your in your genetic line. You're like, how'd that happen? True story. On my father's side, they actually got rid of all of the ancestry documents because they knew there was a runaway slave involved. No kidding. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that's phenomenal. My family actually fled from the South because one of my great-great-great-grandparents uh, was having an affair with a slave girl. So was the neighbor boy, and they got in a duel over her, and he killed him. Oh, my. And and this was right, after, right during the Civil War, and that's why they ended up moving north. <laughs> essentially so had he not done this i might be well actually i wouldn't be rich because after the south fell they took all their <laughs> took everything away from no reparations for you right no. that's funny that we both share something like that in common hmm. but, i don't know uh, what it means maybe a little, reason, yeah. a little bit of interest in hip-hop i don't know it, it just means that people that sinners are messy <laughs> yeah. interest in hip-hop nice nice <laughs> racial <laughs> I'm not quite sure. Just a little interest. I like the crossover stuff, you know. Yeah, the rap rock. But to be to be always repenting is to always have your ears open, and to be curious. I think about where you came from, how you got here, where mm. this came from, who said it, and as we were talking about regarding how quickly social media can kind of captivate your imagination and things that are said, you just take at face value. Likewise, you go into church and someone says, "We've always done it that way." Mm. really we've only been doing it seven years yeah you know or have we been doing it 500 years have we been doing it 2000 years Mm -hmm. let's find out let's not be naive to our own personal history and maybe in the process of reading about history and learning history just like learning science or learning literature or learning political events current events learning from other theologians outside the lutheran church just again examining their work reading them to find out what they believe it will cause you to either go, oh, I, I believe that too. Or, oh, I need to repent of this. I didn't, I didn't realize that this was what Zwingli, you know. Right, what's before. the worst thing that could happen, right? Right. The worst thing that can happen is you find out you're wrong, mm-hmm. period. And if you're afraid of being wrong, and we're all afraid, I mean, we're all afraid of being wrong, especially in public. We, nobody likes to be proven that they're wrong in front of other people. Right. It crushes your ego, hurts your pride. Um, but yet to be always repenting is unfortunately for us old Adam sinners means to always be in a position to say, okay, Lord, crucify that too. Which is why in the Lutheran church, one of the seven marks of the church is the cross, mm. not church discipline. Right. <clears throat> is that we don't need more discipline. What we need is more crosses to put the old Adam to death. The old Adam loves discipline. The old Adam loves a project, a self-improvement mm. project. Yeah, of course. He hates the cross. And so go check it out. Luther and the False Brethren, Mark Edwards Jr. Yep. Uh, yeah, link seventy five. Link, link in the show notes. Get it on Amazon. Buy a used copy. Yeah. Yeah. So that's 
So thanks for listening. Uh, come back next week for a brand new episode. And I uh, hope we pass the audition. See ya. like what you're listening to higher things podcasts are free for you but they aren't free to produce please consider supporting the higher things podcasts as lutheran as it gets gospeled boldly and the black cloister check out www.higherthings.org support for more information thank you for listening and thank you for your support You summoned me, Dr. Frankenstein? Indeed I did, Igor. I wanted to tell you that I'm retiring from the business of monster creation to do something that requires even more genius. What's that, Doctor? Coffee roasting, Igor. There are so many wonderfully complex variables to busy my intellect with. Try the end product, Igor. It's brilliant and delicious. Not bad, Doctor. But have you considered just ordering your coffee pre-roasted? Preposterous, Igor. No one else has the scientific attention to detail that this enterprise requires. What about coffee by Gillespie? Coffee by Gillespie? Christopher Gillespie is a master at selecting high-quality specialty coffee beans that are as sustainable as they are tasty. And to roast them to their finest, he uses traditional techniques combined with the latest technology. Something a scientist like you should appreciate, Doctor. Indeed, indeed. But the coffee, Igor, is it any good? Everything about coffee by Gillespie is done with taste in mind. Gillespie even ships your coffee directly to your address, so it doesn't lose its delectable flavor sitting on the store shelf. You've convinced me, Igor. Coffee by Gillespie clearly has me beat for coffee know-how. Where may I get some? Just go online to gillespie.coffee and order any time. Let it be done, Igor. But opt for the decaf. Frankie can be a handful when he's had too much caffeine. <sighs> coffee by Gillespie. It's brilliant and it's delicious. Here We Stand, Singing the Hymns of the Reformation, is an album of hymns that were sung at various conference locations throughout the years. It includes A Mighty Fortress, Christ Jesus Lay in Death's Strong Bands, Lord, Keep Us Steadfast in Your Word, and seven others. The album and its ten tracks are available for download on Apple iTunes, Amazon MP3, and Google Play. CDs are also available for purchase. For more information on Here We Stand, singing the hymns of the Reformation, head over to www.higherthings.org slash herewestand. Here We Stand, singing the hymns of the Reformation, daring you to sing Lutheran.